everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. On this episode, I sat down with Jeff Chilton. Uh, Jeff was introduced to me, and uh, it was really serendipitous because for a long time I've been wanting to bring on someone to talk about mushrooms. And I think Jeff is really the the perfect person. Um, he's been involved in this work for I don't know maybe fifty years or, or more now, uh, maybe not that much forty or something. But uh, he's he's been in it f- uh, for a long time. And uh, ever since a young age, he was working on a mushroom farm, really learning about uh, mushrooms. And we got into a lot of really fascinating topics, talking about the nutritional aspect of mushrooms, the medicinal aspect of mushrooms and the spiritual aspect of mushrooms, which is actually where we ended up uh, probably spending most of our time talking. Uh, It's always something that I get really excited about when uh, I'm able to interview someone who I I think has a really deep worldview of a lot of these ancient traditions and religions and uh, uses of of these plants or mushrooms. So it was a real joy for me to to have him on and and talk about some of these things, topics that I I find really fascinating. Um, It's, you know, for me, it, it feels like kind of like a geek out moment where I, I find someone who I can really uh, talk about these things with. So it was a really uh, big pleasure to have Jeff on. I think you all will gain a lot from this interview. I think we went close to or maybe even a little bit over three hours. Um, so I hope you all enjoy this interview. One little technical note, we shot this on Zoom. And for whatever reason, normally when I do an interview with Zoom, whoever is speaking, it records the, the active speaker. Uh, for whatever reason in this interview, it didn't do that. Uh, it only recorded Jeff, luckily. Uh, so um, when I'm asking the questions or in dialogue, uh, the camera stays on Jeff, but you can still hear me talking um, as well, but no video. So, uh, But fortunately, we got the video for Jeff. So I think that's it. Um, as always, if you are able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really good option. It's a subscription service. For as little as a dollar a month, you can sign up. There's different tiers, and those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, some bonus material, a chance to ask uh, uh, questions and get responses. To all of the people who have done that, thank you very much. As always, I, I deeply appreciate the support. And if you're able to do that, Thank you in advance. One of the things I really like about that website is it works on this idea of INI, of reciprocity. So if you feel like you're gaining something from these podcasts, uh, I I always really appreciate the support. Um, There's also the ability to direct donate via PayPal, and the YouTube channel now also has an option to join, uh, giving very similar perks to the Patreon page. So I'll put a link to all of those in the show notes. If you're not able to do that, as always, uh, helping out with the algorithms to get the show out to a bigger audience is always a big help. So if you're um, viewing this on YouTube, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving comments in the comments section, uh, sharing the the videos with with, uh, friends and family, that's always a really big help. And then with the audio version on Apple Podcasts, uh, following the show, leaving a star rating and a short review, that's a really big help. Also, I believe with Spotify now, it gives you the option to rate the show. I think if you go on the, the homepage of Spotify for the Universe Within podcast. There's three little dots, and if you hit that, it gives you the option to rate the show. So I think that's it for the intro, and without further ado, here is my conversation with Jeff. Run away from the 
Jeff, it's a pleasure to have you on. We, we were chatting a little bit before we started recording, and uh, and, and thank you again for, for taking the time. I, we were just kind of noticing this this beautiful view. You're coming from Tasmania, and I was I was mentioning I one of my first teachers of, of plants came from Tasmania. Um, but maybe to start, just to to say a little a bit about you. I'm sure it's something you you get a lot. Who are you? I know it's a huge question, but but just to give the audience a little bit about a a bit of background about you, who you are, where you came from, and and really this journey that led you to working with mushrooms. As we were talking about it, it's something that I mean, I even remember. I remember a, a, as a young child learning about mushrooms and we were kind of talking about this idea between the the different aspects of mushrooms the nutritional the the medicinal and the the spiritual i guess you could call it but i remember even on a nutritional sense when i was young i remember learning that mushrooms had no nutritional value and even as a kid i remember thinking that's crazy <laughs> that doesn't make that's any so sense at all <laughs> that is so interesting yeah, yeah. well you know I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, grew up in Washington state and um, the evergreen state. The reason is because it rains a lot. So it actually is a perfect climate for wild mushrooms. One of the best in the world, actually. So I had mushrooms around me all while I was growing up. And then when I went to university, so I'd gotten out and done a little bit of mushroom hunting before that. When I went to university, my study was actually anthropology. Mm. And I also, at that point in time, look, this was in the, the 60s. And so I was in university from 65 to 71. And, and it was a very interesting time <laughs> in the sense that, that um, we were challenging the status quo. And part of that was all of a sudden it was no longer, Oh gee, let's go out and drink beer. It was like, no, everybody was starting to, or a lot of us were starting to smoke uh, cannabis and uh, take LSD or mushrooms. Um, and, and, and so it was a very expansive time in that sense of just experimentation. And look, one of the things that I think, a lot of people need to understand about the 60s because you know there's so much information good and bad about that period of time but in terms of actually you know consuming mushrooms or lsd or something we did not have guides we did not have teachers it was a very experimental time in that sense but but so this is what's going on during that period of time and one of the things that i did is i put my uh, anthropology together with my mushroom interest and in a sense was studying ethnomycology, the use of mushrooms worldwide for food, for medicine, and for uh, religious or spiritual or healing purposes. 
And one of the things that had happened then was that a New York banker named Gordon Wasson, uh, he and his wife were, were going around the world uh, collating mushroom lore and mushroom use. And in the 50s, uh, through a few reports out of Mexico, uh, one of which was by Richard Evan Schultes of Harvard, there were reports out of Mexico that, hey, there are people down there using mushrooms that cause visions. <laughs> so, so he went down there to the state of Oaxaca, and he was there for the next five years every summer, which is during the rainy season. And, and that's when the mushrooms are growing. So they stayed down there. They, they uh, cataloged the different psychoactive species, the psilocybe mushrooms there. And they also contacted different curanderas or curanderos there and had um, what they called a balada with these uh, curanderos, curanderas. And, and um, what transpired from their work there um, in 1957, a magazine called Life Magazine, which was a very large, broad, uh, um, paged um, consumer magazine, put out an article. And it was really interesting because on the front cover of the article, it said um, um, sort of Great Adventures 3, mushrooms that cause visions <laughs> discovered in Mexico. Well, Think about that for a minute, Jason, in terms of a consumer mainstream magazine. And the way they treated it was, isn't this interesting? Mushrooms that cause visions. Oh, my God. You know, it's like, and that um, magazine article, and it was a beautiful article, maybe 10 pages long, and they had pictures in there of one of the curanderas, Maria Sabina. They had beautiful watercolors of the different mushroom species, pictures of Wasson and Roger M., the mycologist that he was working with. So that article, many people saw that, and that stimulated a whole, um, let's just say, revolution in people all of a sudden going, oh, Mushrooms. In fact, that's where Timothy Leary actually got his first uh, experience was going to Mexico um, in the early 60s before he started doing his further research at Harvard and taking the mushrooms and using them down there. So all of that information worked its way back up into the universities and into um, the consciousness of all of us. And so, you know, this was a time where, I don't know if you're familiar with the works of Carlos Castaneda. Well, whether or not you think he was real or not, to me, doesn't really matter because his books were very interesting. And, and because of him, you had a whole generation of, of, um, my generation thinking, I would love to go out and find my own Don Juan. So you had thousands of young people 
going to Mexico, going back up into the mountains, finding the mushrooms, looking for their own Don Juan, or in fact, looking for Maria Sabina, wanting to have that experience, which now in a sense, I look at that and I think that was the very initial stages of what's going on now in a major way, which is uh, where do you go these days when you're looking for a shaman? Well, now it's totally set up. Everybody wants to go to South America. They want to take ayahuasca. They, they want to, why do they want to go there? Well, they're looking for that experience with somebody who is knowledgeable, who, who can guide them through an experience because they don't know where else to go. In, in many cases, and it's certainly not for the experience that is, let's just call a, a real, uh, I mean, generally speaking, depending on who you happen to end up with, right? Because it could just be, you know, somebody out there, you know, as you know, trying to make money and it's just, you know, push them through. But that was kind of the, the 60s in that sense and, and going to Mexico and looking for that mushroom curandera or, or looking for your Don Juan, who was uh, a Yaqui uh, Indian, and they were using peyote for the most part and other plants. But that, that kind of started also. So I was right in the middle of that. And, and I, I was taking trips to Mexico during that period. And ultimately, after university, I went to Oaxaca and I lived in Oaxaca for a year and a half. Sí, por eso yo, yo puedo hablar el español. Eso es para mí. También este estado de Oaxaca es como un hogar. I, I just got back from Oaxaca, actually. I was there for the last four months. And it is a wonderful, wonderful state with all sorts of fantastic indigenous groups that are still... Um, pretty much, I mean, still maintain a lot of their, their customs, which is very unusual. I mean, look at North America. That's kind of, okay, they sort of try and go through the motions, but not like Mexico, where they're still in villages back in the mountains, still doing things the way they did it thousands of years ago. Yeah, sure, they have phones and things like that. They have cars, but it's still very much... The, all of that is still very similar. So, so at any rate, I, I was down there for a year and a half. I was uh, looking for my Don Juan, so to speak. <laughs> but, but in the meantime, what, what happens too is, okay, you're with a group of, you know, I was down there alone, just traveling around, hitchhiking everywhere. You know, it's kind of like Mexico on $2 a day. And, and, and so it was a wonderful time. Lots of interesting people were doing the same thing. Um, I did ultimately uh, make it up to Wautla, which was the name of the small town where Maria Sabina was and that whole Sierra Mazateca where the mushrooms were growing. And, and I, had, I, I actually had quite a, um, I would say, it was a, a bit of a... a life-changing experience. But, it, but interestingly enough, it wasn't because I was taking the mushrooms up there. I took mushrooms during the whole period, but not with anybody in particular. But I had an experience up there with, with another 
Mazda tech man that I had met. But then, then when I got back from Mexico, um, what do you do with a degree in anthropology, Jason? I mean, <laughs> so, so I, I, at that point in time, and look, during my studies at university, they were all pretty much focused on, on mushrooms and, and how, uh, you know, really the spiritual side of them was the big thing because so many of us were looking for what was missing in our lives. I mean, you know, part of the 60s was religion. It's empty. There, there is nothing spiritual about it. It is nothing more than rituals. So, so opening up ourselves and to the um, experience of whether it be LSD or mushrooms or peyote, um, that was a, a very big part of what was going on and just the freedom of um, physically and mentally of what that meant. But coming back to the United States, I'm like, well, I would really like to learn how to grow mushrooms. Wouldn't that be so cool? I went to the only mushroom farm in Washington state in 1973. I got a job there. I was at that farm for the next 10 years, <laughs> literally living with mushrooms. Mm. So when, when you were growing up, uh, when you were a boy or a young man, you said you grew up around mushrooms. Was there, I guess at that time, there, there wasn't an awareness that, that, they, that they had these other effects, these psychedelic effects or spiritual effects? Were, were they just seen as, I mean, do you remember from that time, were they just seen as something pretty or you have to be careful of them because they can kill you if you eat them? Or what was the at that time, kind of what was the, the general consensus about mushrooms? How were people looking at them? Well, I would say for the most part, people were just kind of like very unaware of them or, or, or you know, even as kids, you might just kick one over. If it was big enough. Um, but I, I was able to go out and do some mushroom hunting with um, the parents of friends of mine, which kind of got me into it. You know, a mushroom hunt is like a treasure hunt. You go out, you're in the forests. It's a beautiful environment. You're scanning the ground for mushrooms of whatever size and shape. And when you find something that is a choice edible, it is really finding a treasure, finding that little pot of gold there so it's very satisfying and very interesting and a lot of fun and you know part of it too is is um just getting out getting out into the forest getting out with nature just being in that environment and i feel so fortunate to have grown up in in that part of the world because we have fabulous forests there we even have old growth forests we have uh, lakes and rivers. There's no shortage of water there. So it's a wonderful part of the world and, and something where it's always going to be very 
I'm going to be rooted in that and, and always think about how fortunate I was to grow up in a place where we had fresh air, fresh water, the water that came out of our taps in the fifties, God, Jason, it was like nectar, especially after, I mean, we would take trips in the fifties down to Los Angeles where my aunt and uncle lived and they couldn't drink water out of the tap. Their water came in five gallon jugs that were delivered to them on a regular basis. And, and you just think about that and even try some of that tap water down there. And it's just horrible. Even the, the bottled water was really dead in a way. So you, you ultimately come to appreciate simple things like the taste of water. That sounds like a, a silly thing, but I think for a lot of people, they probably never really tasted real water in that way. I mean, uh, about maybe 10 miles from here, there, there's a little hot spring. It's actually kind of the end point of, of some very high hot springs. Uh, and, and there's a little pool down at the base of the mountain and right next to there, and nobody even really sees it. They just go there for the hot spring, but right next to it, uh, coming out of the ground, there's this little bubbling water. And uh, if you drink it, a lot of people think you're crazy. Like, what are you doing? Drinking water out of the ground, <laughs> you're going to get sick and you're going to die. But, uh, the, the, the maintenance guy who, who, who takes care of it, he says, no, no, you know, that's a natural spring. It's coming from this pure pristine water and you drink it and it, it's like even that term which we've stopped using sweet water that comes from from drinking real water because it's actually sweet oh, <laughs> it has a sweetness it, to it that's, that's almost undescribable to someone it, it, it is nectar it, yeah. it is absolute i i remember actually on my trip from cusco to the sacred valley that not far out of cusco we stopped at a place where it was um, kind of built up with stone and stuff, but there was a, a big gushing pipe of water coming out there. And that was kind of why we stopped. It was like some uh, naturally occurring spot where people could come and get water and so on. And it was just a real sort of, I'll sort of like never forget that being there and seeing that. And then it was just a gusher of water coming out of this uh, really interesting older pipe there right out of the, the stone wall. Yeah. So maybe just to, to clarify, I think there's some terms that get thrown around a lot. And um, I think sometimes there's some confusion about that. So how would you define things like, for example, a mushroom, uh, a fungus, mycelium. I think these are all spores. I think these are all things that people hear about and maybe we think we have an idea what they are, but I think often there's a lot of confusion. So is that something you could speak a little bit about? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, um, first of all, it, it's kind of interesting because as a mushroom grower, um, it's kind of like, well, how do you grow mushrooms? They don't have seeds. Where do we start here? We've got a seedless organism that we want to grow. Well, mushrooms have spores. Um, those spores in nature, they uh, drift off on air currents. They land on the ground. They land on wood. They land on everything. I mean, you know, what's, what's interesting, too, is that the, our, the air we breathe is filled 
with things we cannot see, spores, pollen, you name it, bacteria, everything. So we're breathing in that all the time. So these spores will, will land uh, in various different uh, types of organic matter. And when conditions are right, which is normally when things get moist enough because the spore needs moisture to germinate, these spores will germinate and they'll germinate into a very fine filament called a hypha. And, and when multiple of these filaments come together and fuse, they will form a network and that network is called mycelium. And, and mycelium is considered the vegetative body of this fungal organism. So we're talking about a fungal organism and in the, in the, um, the whole kingdom of fungi, there's so many different areas uh, and different classifications of them that what we call mushrooms is just one arena. There, there's another that we, we know about um, commonly, which we would call molds. Um, so this, this um, mycelium, this network, it, it is spreading as long as it has a food source, it will spread consuming it. Fungi are nature's recyclers. They're out there working with uh, bugs. They're working with um, you know, multiple molds. They're working with bacteria. It's, it's, it's a, a feast out there breaking down all of this organic matter ultimately into humus. So this, this uh, mycelial body, um, we don't normally see it because it's underground or it's <clears throat> embedded in a piece of wood. What we tend to see is when conditions are right, which in the Pacific Northwest is the fall, what happens in the fall? We get a lot of rain. Uh, the humidity goes up mushrooms, the actual mushroom needs high humidity. If it's too dry, it cannot grow because it'll dry out almost immediately. So when conditions are, are right, uh, a, a mushroom will form and it starts out as a very fine little, what we call a, a, a pin, uh, and then it grows into uh, um, what we call a button. So it'll go through different stages Ultimately, we see the stem, the cap. The cap will, uh, as it matures, expand. Underneath the cap will be uh, um, gills. And on those gills, the spores will be produced. And when it's mature, it will produce, uh, those spores will fly out. We've got sort of a completion of the life cycle. So um, what we have, and, and in the... Um, supplement business, we identify what we call plant parts. Because when you're buying a, a supplement, for example, um, are you getting the leaf? Are you getting the fruit? Are you getting the flower? Are you getting the root? It's very important. Uh, any herb, and you know that because you've worked with herbs out there, there's a, a specific part of that plant that's the important part that has most of the compounds that we're looking for. So uh, with 
this organism. Um, we have spore, we have mycelium, and we have mushroom. Those are the three plant parts. And the part that has been utilized traditionally as a medicinal or even as a, a sacred uh, uh, plant, so to speak, or a sacred mushroom, uh, is the mushroom. The mushroom is what has been used in traditional Chinese medicine, the, um, uh, um, has been used for spirituality or healing. Uh, so that, that's really the key to, to understand there. And, and you know, one of the differences between um, this fungal organism that produces a mushroom and then what we would call a mold, and, and you know, most people are familiar with molds because if you're eating bread or some of your food, you'll see something growing on it. And it is basically what you're normally seeing is you're seeing mycelium growing. It'll start out primarily... Uh, looking like a white, fuzzy, uh, um, filamentation-taceous type, type growth, and then it will turn a color. So oftentimes when you see it on the bread, if it's a little bit mature, you'll see it'll be a black mold, a green mold. When it turns colors, that those are spores that are making that color. And, you know, people are... are um, uh, molds have gotten sort of this reputation of, oh God, I've got mold in my house or something, and that's making me sick. And what it is, is that it causes, that mold will cause a respiratory disease, and it's the spores. So you don't want to be breathing in mold spores. Now, we're breathing them in all the time, naturally, but not in the, a concentration that may happen inside your house in a room, you've got mold growing on your walls and, and the mold, it'd just be a mycelium, but then a sporulating. Um, uh, they even have something, a disease called mushroom wor workers lung. And, and that comes from if you're in a mushroom house and you're, you know, mushroom house is an enclosed space. And if you're harvesting mushrooms, you're in there eight hours a day, day after day. And if those mushrooms uh are allowed to mature, that room will be filled with spores. And so these harvesters are, are, are breathing in these spores and that gives people an allergic reaction. Um, so, uh, and that's the mold. And the mold does not produce um, what we would call a fruiting body. So the mycelium is a vegetative body. The mushroom is the fruiting body. Um, and and basically a mold, the difference really, one of the major differences, it does not produce a fruiting body. It's simply in the mycelium stage only. So it doesn't produce this uh, mushroom-like structure. So the key thing to remember, and especially when you're buying a, a, a supplement, is uh, are you getting mycelium or are you getting the actual mushroom? And the mushroom is what you're really looking for. So um, again, those are the three plant parts that you have. In, in China, it's really interesting, Jason, because they harvest spores from reishi mushrooms now. So, so in these, in these uh, greenhouses where they're growing hundreds upon hundreds, thousands of reishi mushrooms, they will shroud them, they will put a, a, a bag at the bottom of each one, and 
when they mature, they'll allow them to to grow for an extra 30 days just to harvest the spores, which today are worth more in China than the actual mushroom itself. And one mushroom is producing billions, billions of spores. I um, weighed up a bag of spores over there and it was 400 grams from one mushroom. 400 grams. It was like a huge bag of spores. It was Unbelievable. But the, the important thing here, again, is, is what is it that you're really looking for? And it's the mushroom. Uh, just like if you're, if you're looking for a psilocybe mushroom, well, you, you want the mushroom, right? You're not looking for mycelium or spores or anything like that. You want the actual mushroom. That's the uh, biofactory for these compounds. And, and, you know, that's what we're, we're interested in when we are consuming, whether it be these plants or these mushrooms and, and different species, for example, will produce different amounts of psilocybin and psilocin. So that's, that's part of it as well is, is that there'll be different species of, of psilocybe mushroom and each one will have you know maybe a, little, a few minor differences. I mean, certainly in in Mexico, the the um, indigenous people there have different names for the different species, which is which is quite interesting. They have common names as well. I mean, they call them uh, pajaritos or hombrecitos, mujercitos. Um, so uh, that's part of how they would recognize the different species uh, or, or just in general, because gen in general terms, I'd primarily call them pajaritos or hombrecitos or mujercitos. So from the, from the, uh, I guess you'd, you'd say the evolutionary point of view for the mycelium, the one could think about the, the mushroom itself as, as kind of like the analogy used as the, the fruiting body of the tree. That's the mushroom itself is what produces the spores to allow the mycelium to, to propagate itself. Sure, sure, sure. And, and, and you know, I, I uh, um, you know, you could also look at the mycelium and consider it to be similar to a root structure because what it's doing, it, it is, it is building nutrients into its body and, and then feeding those nutrients to the production of these mushrooms. And, and in, a, in, a, in a mushroom season too, what's really interesting is that, um, you know, mushrooms will come up at the same spot every year. But if they exhaust their food source, that mycelium that has produced those mushrooms, that vegetative body will die. It's not like, it's not like the mycelium is there forever. It's not. It's, it's got to have the, the uh, food to continue to grow and propagate. So even old mycelium can die off while new mycelium continues to grow out. And that, that mycelium, when it's underground, it will continue to spread and grow as long as it can find uh, sufficient and proper food. And, and it's important to understand, too, that different species will grow on different what we call substrates. For example, uh, 
Psilospe cubensis grows on a, a cow patty. So a, a, a cow pie, it's a, it's a, a dung inhabiting uh, fungus, whereas others are wood inhabiting. A wood inhabitor is not going to grow in that cow pie, period. So each particular species has, um, as they've evolved, are specialized to, to break down certain types of organic matter. So you, you can't just think, oh, yeah, this thing will grow in whatever, just plant it out there and away it goes. No, not at all. <coughs> so just like, just like the idea that, oh, this thing will live forever, it won't. Um, in, in some cases, <clears throat> it will grow in a, for example, uh, so the philosophies really kind of like to grow in disturbed areas. They, they have a mushroom in Mexico they call the derrumbe, which means landslide mushroom. You get a, a fresh landslide and up come a specific species, but they may only be in that landslide for the first or second year. It's just like a morel mushroom. It's the same. They like burned off areas. They will come right into a burned off area. Um, it's kind of the burn. They, they figure it's, it's kind of sterilized this area. Now the morel, uh, um, it fits what the morel needs to grow. It comes in it, the first year. It's amazing. Second year, a little bit. Third year, nothing. So again, it's not like that mycelium is going to be there forever. However, if there is a area where um, it's getting a continual food source, uh, like maybe it's a, a symbiotic mushroom that's got a relationship to a tree. And so it's hanging out there with this tree. There's a lot of, of uh, new material that's coming down around the tree all the time. Plus, it's, it's uh, hooked up with the um, roots of the tree. It's got this relationship that will probably be there for years and years and years and years, unless something happens to the tree. So, so you know, it's a, a kind of a complex uh, um, environment or relationship, but at the same time, yeah, it's, it's, you know, not necessarily so. But I think the important thing to remember is that each species has uh, an enzyme system that is specific to a certain type of organic matter. So, so if you've got a mushroom and you want to grow it and it is a wood decomposer, primarily you're going to grow it on something that is high in cellulose, something that is high in woody or could even be straw or something like that. But it's not going to grow in, in dung or in soil or something like that. So it seems like... With the mycelium, with this limited lifespan, it, as you said, it, it it can survive as long as it's getting food. So, for example, in in, in dung, that would seem like a relatively shorter lifespan. If it's a, a decomposing log, maybe a little bit longer, but still relatively short. But in this example, you used of maybe like a, a live tree that's constantly feeding it. Is there any evidence of of mycelial that that, that had been around for? hundreds of years or thousands of years is there any idea of of like a potentiality of, of how long a mycelium uh, could potentially stay alive for well you know that, that's really an interesting concept isn't it you know it's almost like 
a sacred tree. You know what I mean? It's like this tree in our environment, it is producing, let's just say the mushroom sacrament. And, and we are, you know, in a sense, it's a, it's, we revere this tree, we protect it, we make, because we know that it will produce this wonderful mushroom. And in a, in, a, in a way, one of the mushrooms, I mean, philosophies are not uh, symbiotic in that sense, but something like um, Amanita muscaria is, is definitely associated with forests and trees. It doesn't grow out in, you know, the open areas or on wood or anything like that. So, so um, and, and look, there, there are, um, mycologists out there that study this type of thing. And I think we'll probably see more of that. And the other thing too is, is sometimes people have this, like a mushroom coming up in there on their property uh, somewhere. And so I think as there's a, a greater awareness of mushrooms, we're going to probably see people coming out with that type of information, which, which may be out there already. And uh, for example, I mean, Look, the, the, um, uh, in Europe, one of the major commercial mushroom species is the truffle. And the truffle grows with oak trees. So, again, you can go out into these oak forests, and they do, and they go out year after year after year for hundreds of years, harvesting these truffles from the same forest. And, and you know, what happens, however, is that like with the truffle harvest, there was a point in the, I think it was in 1850 or 1900, when the amount of truffles that they were harvesting was somewhere around 200 tons. Now, since then, um, okay, the all of a sudden now in today's world, they only harvest nine tons. Well, okay, what changed? One, all of those oak forests were cut down for, um, let's just say, commercial purposes or, or um, suburban purposes, housing projects. All of a sudden, though, that environment was changed to the point where, where the habitat was, was pretty much gone. So it shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And not only did it shrink, but... At a certain point, they realized what was going on, the, the truffle industry, and they started, they did a lot of research and they started um, um, utilizing the mycelium and putting it together with young oak seedlings. And then they started to put in oak plantations with the truffle mycelium on the roots already. And those started to produce over time, which allowed the industry to sort of stabilize. But you think about that for a minute and you go 200 tons down to nine tons. Pretty, pretty incredible. And, and that, that's sort of an issue with wildcrafting. And that's an issue with so many different species, whether it be plant or animal, that when you disturb or uh, ruin its habitat, all of a sudden, you're not going to be able to go out and harvest as much as you you used to, and and that's where wildcrafting 
I'm not a big fan of wildcrafting because of that, because as a species, we tend to go out and harvest until there's nothing left. Unless there's some very strict regulations put down and it's controlled in a certain way. Fisheries are a great example of that. Um, you know, you, you can ultimately control fishing on a river. You can say, okay, this is um, fly fishing only, or this is uh, um, you have to uh, throw the fish back. You can't keep it, uh, or, or you can, you're limited to only one fish a day. You know, you can put in those kind of rules and regulations. And if you have the, the will to enforce it, you can maybe carry on with that particular resource. But, uh, you know, the, the um, just a, a sort of little side story, the interesting thing about Oaxaca, Mexico in the 60s was that because of that Life magazine article, uh, many, many young people of my generation flooded into Oaxaca and flooded up into the mountains where uh, to this small little village up there where Maria Sabina was. And they were all up there to get mushrooms. Some of them were up there to see if they couldn't take, have a uh, session with her. Um, and, and it got so bad. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, nobody's being very um, respectful. People are eating mushrooms. They're wandering through the mountains, <laughs> literally wandering very high, enjoying themselves, generally speaking. But what about the, the locals? What are they thinking about this? People wandering around very high on mushrooms day and night um, when these are used in healing ceremonies that take place uh, during a balada late at night. So in 1968, um, they actually closed the whole area down. They brought in the army. They set up uh, um, checkpoints on every road going into the area, and they then went into the area and they swept up every single gringo they could find and deported them. They closed it off, Jason, for the next maybe close to 20 years. Wow. You could not go in there as a foreigner unless you had some kind of special permission. Now, I, I went in there in 1972 secretly, and it was, you know, it was a bit of a, <laughs> I, I took a real chance to get up in there, but I had a friend that was up there and I wanted to go up and see him. And so, but it was, you know, the interesting part about that too was like, okay, so now they closed it off, which was a good thing because it was really disrupting the whole, um, uh, um, let's just say the communities up there, really disruptive. And you can imagine the other thing that's happening, and I'm sure it's happening down in South America as well, which is all of a sudden that sacred plant is now a commercial commodity. And now it is being bought and sold. And once something becomes a commodity and is bought and sold, you generate a lot of feelings 
that in many cases are not very positive. Um, and, and so in that sense, it was, a, it was a good move for the government to do. And, and I went up there again in um, 2002. And at that point in time, it, it had been lifted. It, it got lifted somewhere in the 80s and they allowed people back up. But at that point in time, everybody had forgotten about it. They had literally forgotten about it. <laughs> and so when we were up there in 2002, there were three Mexican hippies in town, no one else. <laughs> they actually, at that point in time, were having a mushroom festival every rainy season. Were, and, were you one of those three or yeah. <laughs> three, three plus? At that yeah. point in time, no. At that point in time, I was, you know, like, okay, I had my business well established and things like that. But I was down in Mexico on a, on a, I went to a conference actually, I think at that point. And then we spent some time in Oaxaca and we went up there and we, we actually had a, my wife and I had a very nice, um, interesting balada with a local curandera there who was a really wonderful woman Doña Julia and um, at that point I mean in the 90s Maria Sabina had died and was long gone and and you know there, there was still a little bit of uh, um, let's just say um, there there were a few people around that would give you a balada a lot of them were in my opinion um, they were the wrong kind of people to be doing it but it was a kind of a money-making thing. And so some people got hoodwinked, so to speak, and, and with these people. But this woman was genuine, and um, she was actually a relative of my, my friend uh, he, who was no longer alive at that point in time, but I had known about her from him. And so I went up there to, to see her, and we had a really wonderful experience with her. And, uh, um, and, and, you know, uh, I think the other thing, too, to remember is that the use of the mushroom in Mexico is, was for healing purposes. So when they had a balada, it was, in a sense, doctor and patient. So it was the curandera and her patient. And the interesting part about it to me was that, that they both were consuming the mushrooms. So the patient was consuming the mushrooms. You know, in a lot of places, it's not that way. The, the sick person is not going to be consuming the, the uh, uh, mushroom uh, or, or whatever the plant happens to be. But in this case, it was. And, and, and the, the thing that she's really trying to do is she's trying to diagnose. And, and also, I think a lot of it, too, is... Um, you know, you know, that, that experience is so powerful. I, I think if you can get somebody to, uh, into the, the proper, uh, space, they can come out of it with a whole different, not just mental vision, but physical. I mean, you know, one of the things I think that people do, don't talk about much with these experiences is just the physical part of it, because for me, one of the things about it, whether it was LSD or mushrooms or something was you could get into an ecstatic state. 
And that ecstatic state, in my opinion, is could be the ultimate healing state to where every cell in your body is lit up and you're just in a state of ecstasy. And in a sense, at that point in time, you're, you're um, letting go. You know, you know, for me, it's kind of like the, the Beatles song, turn off your mind, relax and flow downstream or float downstream. That, that to me is really a big part of it. And, and, you know, at the same time, because so much was written about these states historically by, um, let's just say, natural scientists in the early 1900s and and they all looked at it as a visionary state. And, and so, I mean, I was sort of looking for visions, but I think at the same time that gets overplayed because really, if you can just let go and relax and, and let it just wash over you, and, and in, in this sense, that's kind of like becoming one with the universe in that sense. I, I think that state is probably one of the highest healing states that we can reach. And, and that's where if you go really back in, in time to all of the sort of ancient writings about the experience and how they talk about it, I think that's primarily what they're really getting to is is you know consume this plant this sacrament and reach uh, you know i mean it, it, however you want to say it reach the godhead reach the uh, the um the universal energy field that's out there but that that i think is really something i, I don't know whether people talk about it this way anymore or not because i've kind of not tuned in so much to what's going on because there's conferences and there's all sorts of stuff going on out there which i really have not taken part in um so i don't know i only know this from my own experience and man let me tell you when you're in that state it is just like wow <laughs> this is great. I, I was I was actually going to get into the the more uh, nutritive and and medicinal qualities of mushrooms first, but but I think you've 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 jumped right into the the deep end. So so why don't we we go there? When you were speaking, uh, uh, I was actually reminded when when you were talking about the the cutting down of the oak trees, I was actually reminded of a of a story I heard. It was either from the Shuar or the Ashwar. There are there are a group of people in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And uh, they have very, very specific uh, gender roles, and and they say that the nature of of man of men is is to hunt and to 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 cut down trees because that that's what they have to do to provide their food, to provide their 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 wood to cook the food. Uh, and they would say the the engendered role of the woman. Uh, because they they see that the the man because his nature is to to hunt and to cut down the wood, but that he lacks wisdom and he doesn't know when to stop. And that was kind of that that story you were saying with the oak tree and that the the wisdom of the woman uh, is that isn't in her nature to to hunt and to cut down the wood, but her wisdom is to tell the men when to stop, 
in a way she's the she's the peacekeeper she's the wisdom keeper who who knows how to create that harmony or, or that balance in nature and so it, it just reminded me of that <clears throat> it also reminded me or actually it made me think for the first time when you mentioned this idea kind of of the sacred tree that potentially one of the reasons people may have looked at that tree as sacred and and it's something really fascinating because you see this in forests all over the world. But I, I know because I've spent a, a bit of time in the Amazon that I don't know the exact distance, but within a number of kilometers, there's often one tree that they would call like the mother tree. And it's often the biggest tree. It's it's the tree that they would say on a more spiritual level, it looks after the other trees. It's the guardian. And so if you're walking in the Amazon and you come across like the, the Lapuna tree, for example, which is often this very, this massive tree, people would pay a lot of respect to it. They, they, would, uh, they would ask for permission to pass. They would give it off offerings. But it was this idea that there was something very sacred about it. And when you were speaking about that, I had never really made that correlation that there could be something that because that tree was so massive that all around, I mean, I'm kind of imagining like radiating out from that mother tree would be like very concentrated soil because it's the biggest landmass or the, the, the biggest uh, creator in that area. Um, is that something you've seen? Because even in, in a lot of European or, or American traditions that you mentioned this idea of the oak and the, was it the, the morel or the, 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 the chanterelle? Well, well, um, the, with the, with the oak trees, of course it was the truffle. The truffle, um, sorry. Then, yeah. Yeah. So is there a, do, do you notice other correlations between specific trees that, the particular mushrooms like to grow around that tree because I'd never really thought about that before, but that's a very interesting concept because again, the oak tree, for example, is considered a very sacred tree, not only for its own medicine, but, but I wonder if there is some sort of correlation between certain mushrooms that may uh, have a propensity to grow near certain trees. Well, well, there's certainly, there's certainly a lot written about sacred trees in, in the, whole uh, Near East and India and all of these traditions that the sacred tree or, or the cosmic axis too, they call it. I mean, it, it's, it's in a lot of their mythology. Um, it seems to be something that's very important. And there has been speculation, certainly, that one of the reasons for this is the fact that um, in that whole area, that part of the world, the Amanita mushroom grows in conjunction with specific types of trees. And it varies depending on where you happen to be because it will grow on a number of different species, but primarily seems to grow with uh, conifer type trees. So, so um, that association, certainly you could go, my God, this plant it's growing with this particular tree. Um, we want to protect that tree. We want to protect that forest because that's where it comes on. The cosmic tree is also, and the, the axis is also something that in shamanism has been um, pretty well documented. And, and certainly, for example, the Siberian shamans that were using Amanita muscaria and, and there, this is where a lot of the mythologies of the Christmas tree, for example, come from. And 
and the idea that um, not only that, that in Siberia, the shaman actually will come down into the, the structure on that cosmic tree that's in the center of this home. And, and also there, there's some ideas of them even drying these Amanita mushrooms on the trees themselves. Kind of like if you think about ornaments on a Christmas tree. And so, so this association with the, with the cosmic tree, I think it could very well be, uh, or stem, let's say, from the association. And, you know, I think that, that sacred plants, for example, I mean, there's a lot of mythology that gets built up around sacred plants and where they grow and how they grow and the meaning of that. And so those... Um, types of associations, I think, are, are relatively common, and, and you can imagine why they would be. I mean, we would we would consider that if, if we have certain species that are growing somewhere that we is producing some kind of fruit or that we really highly prize, and in this case, it'd be a you know something sacred. Um, that would be very um, important for us to try and protect, and and we could have mythologies and things like that of why we do that because you know a lot of times the mythologies um they they get misinterpreted over time and, and so a lot of what we read about you know it's like greek gods or things like that i mean and they have all sorts of reasonings for who these gods are and why they're doing one thing or the other but when you when you get uh when you pull all that away and you look at it from, let's just say, uh, uh, astronomy basis, well, they've kind of like proven now that, that it's all, a lot of that is based on astronomy and the planets and where they are and what that means for us as humans. I mean, it, it's just like, are you familiar at all with precession? Uh, well, you think about precession, and for those who don't know what pr precession is, is it's essentially a... 26,000 year calendar, so to speak. And we all think of ast astrology as some like woo woo kind of stuff. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that initially the, the, um, our world and how it functioned was divided into 12, what some people call houses or 12. Um, in this case, it was 12, 21, hundred year uh, um, parts because that's the amount of time it took for the earth to go through this, what they call the great year. And, and that's something that's kind of been totally forgotten by most people. I mean, it's kind of coming back a little bit now because uh, archaeoastronomy or astrotheology has become more of a subject that people study, but it's so interesting when you start to take that into consideration of, of the fact that people actually figured this out tens of thousands of years ago. Well, and, and when you get right down to it and you think, well, how's that possible? Well, and then you think, well, what did we have to look at at night? <laughs> and, and, you know, that was the TV of the time, really, when you think about it, and people studying that and passing down that information, 
and ultimately, in some cases, putting it in stone. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, stone monuments out there where they look at those and they can see they're all, they have all these astronomical alignments. Um, and, and in fact, I just read an article this morning where some researcher came out and again, sort of confirmed that Stonehenge was a very, very large calendar set up according to the motion, uh, um, celestial motion. And, and I think too, uh, when you think about even um, consuming plants or mushrooms for their psychoactive qualities, you're doing it at night generally. And, and I, I've always wondered uh, about timing. And, you know, uh, when I was in Mexico in the early 70s, the full moon was really a big deal for us then. We celebrated it. It's always been celebrated, but how many people in the city celebrate the full moon anymore or even know when it's, there is a full moon? We're, we're so out of tune, out of touch with the, the whole, let's just call it celestial mechanics, which I find just it's, it's fascinating when I uh, start to uh, think about that in, in any way. And so I'm very conscious of when the full moon is or the, the new moon when it's you know, complete darkness or the full moon out and you have this moonlight out there. I, I, I find that very important marking of, of this motion that's going on that we just kind of ignore these days and think, oh, whatever. And, and in those days during the full moon, that was really a time when we would, you know, often be, okay, yeah, we're going to take this really great uh, trip, have this experience on the full moon. This is great, Jeff. I, I I think we could go on for a couple hours about all this. This is uh, <laughs> this is stuff I love to talk about. Um, yeah, I think that's a fascinating thing. I, I think a lot of people probably aren't even familiar, like with the processional uh, equinox, is what that means. Even I think most people they probably have some idea that the Earth rotates around the Sun, or, or there's a symbiosis. The Earth and the Sun are rotating together. Uh, that that also the earth is re revolving around its own axis. But I think very few people realize that there's that third processional uh, rotation. And it's, it's such a fascinating thing because even as you were saying in, in ancient times, when we had better visual, uh, just a better visual of the night sky, I often think, because when you break that, you know, 25 some thousand year great year into, into 12 cycles, <laughs> it, it's, it's 2000 some years. If you break that, you know, into 360 degrees, which is the actual change, that's one degree every 72 years, which 72, seven plus two, nine, is, very uh, sacred number. Yes, exactly. But, but even, even to look at that, I mean, 72 is... You know, most people would say that's a pretty healthy age if you live to be 72, like, you know, you had a pretty good life. But yeah. even if you started when you were one year old and you were looking at the sky, you would only notice a one degree difference by the time you had died. You know, I think it really points to something which I'd love to talk to you about, which you alluded to a little bit, is that you know, one of the things that, that really drew me to this plant work was this idea that I really sensed in kind of my own journey that you mentioned this idea that part of these, these mushrooms or the plants, these healing plants or these sacred plants 
are pointing us to this idea of oneness or God or this gnosis, this experience of that. And it was something that you said a little bit about in the beginning, maybe similar to you, that that it was something in in the culture that you grew up in that, that you felt was lacking. Like we had these kind of, I don't want to say empty rights, but but that they had lost their meaning, as you said, they they had become lost in the in the dogma, in the in the ritual, rather than the true essence. And and I think that's probably a lot of what people in like my father's generation also were were looking for was we realized something was missing, and and so these plants or or mushrooms, I think for a lot of people, and I think that's why there's another big resurgence of it today, is because they sense what they're looking for can potentially be accessed through these things. And uh, I, I was really happy when, cause I listened to another interview with you and, and I think the mushroom is a really fascinating thing. And some people, when, when, when we say this, it, they may be familiar with it, but to a lot, it's going to be pretty shocking. But um, this idea that these plants or these mushrooms could have been at the basis of all religion. And, and I know that's a very bold statement. Um, but again, all, you know, as you were mentioning, like the, the Vedic calendars, the Mayan calendars, the Egyptian calendars, they all did use these processional cycles. And I, before we started rolling, I, you were saying in 95, you came to Peru and I, I was here in, in 94 as a kid. And, and I remember going to Sacsayhuaman and just seeing these massive stone structures and then going to other places. And, and I was taught these were Incan structures and I just accepted that. But, but then I remember seeing other structures that were also Incan structures and even as a kid, I mean, I wasn't an architect or, an, or a mason. I didn't know stonework, but it was very clear to me that whoever built those massive stone structures <laughs> were not the same people <laughs> who built these stone structures that, you know, as a kid, I could understand how those smaller stone structures were built. Like I, I may not have had the strength to do it, but I could understand mathematically, uh, literally how, how, people could do that. The massive megalithic stone structures, I, I, I can't. And, and I think anyone who, who may be, <laughs> especially if we, if we view time in this linear fashion and that as we go back in history, people were more and more primitive. I think anyone would be lying to themselves if they say, well, with these primitive methods, you were able to build these things. We're, we're, we're not even sure that we could build them now if, if we're yeah. <laughs> truly being honest. But I know this is kind of a long tangent, but going back to this idea of mushrooms as a sacrament, um, I guess this is maybe a two-part question. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was, was this idea, because a lot of people when they hear of mushrooms, they hear of this idea that a mushroom isn't a plant and it's not an animal, that it's something in between. So maybe if you could talk about that and also some of your early like Belale experiences, because as you said, you have been kind of away from this, what's maybe being called like a renaissance of psychedelics, but with a lot of that, it's moving in a very particular direction. And I'd be really curious to hear in, in the sixties or seventies, what your experience was, because I think that's something very valuable and something that you mentioned 
which was really important was this idea that there was a healing that was happening and that there, there was some relationship that was happening in that space between you, the mushroom, the curandera, and, and what that was like for you. And I think I, I was also reminded of that because you use this word like doctorcita or doctorcito, mujercita, hombrecito, which is this, this idea that I think we may overlook but it seems to be alluding to the fact that there is something that's just beyond this physical form of this mushroom, that it's almost being anthropomorphized that some people may call it a spirit or, but there's something beyond just the mushroom itself. And so I'm curious also in this realm of, of from a more like scientific point of view, what does that mean when something isn't a plant or an animal uh, so I, I know that's a long thing, but I guess maybe to start the, those two parts, like that, that difference between plant and animal, and then also some of your earlier experiences in Mexico, I'd, I'd be really curious about that. Well, you know, I, I'm when, you know, it's, it, it is interesting, kind of a mushroom. What is, what is with this organism? And, you know, there's, there's a, a number of aspects to that that are, are, Quite interesting, and if we go back into prehistory and we go back to the the uh, Middle East and and the original what you could call the original mushroom cults, um, one of the things that you have to realize about a mushroom too is that look at this thing. Where does it come from? There's so many mythologies around that alone. It's like people go, "It wasn't there yesterday, but there it is." Why and how and where did it come from? And, you know, where people maybe didn't really um, understand the whole idea of, oh, well, it's actually the body of it is actually underground and it comes up. And, and, and maybe that's wrong. Maybe they did. I, I, I don't know, because when you think about it, you think of a plant roots. Uh, if you do any sort of investigation, you'd probably figure, figure that out. But, but here it is. Up it comes. And, and the other part of that that I think we have to understand is a mushroom is very, very phallic. And that is part of these original mushroom cults, especially in the, the Near East, were considered to be um, not just a, um, um, let's just say, experiential, uh, visionary quest or anything, but it was also considered to be part of, of um, like Dionysian rites where people were not just taking these as, oh, gee, I'm going to take these, lay down in a room, and here we go. No, it could be wild uh, um, sort of dancing and, and just ecstatic motion, um, which a lot of which could be uh, sexual, but the, the mushroom and its shape alone was was one of the reasons why, my God, it is. It has this shape, very much like uh, this appendage to a male body, which gave it even more significance in terms of of being. And it's, they they described a lot of these early cults as, as sort of sexual. And, and look, what what is religion really? I mean, we look at religion and we think about it as being an organized kind of people get together and they're in a structure and there's some priest 
it's hierarchical and, and when in fact maybe maybe not maybe maybe it is just this um the early like for example i i think the whole um idea that religion stemmed from these particular plants or mushrooms i i consider that to be just common sense i mean why else would people um create this other um and, and early i mean why would christianity adopt this eat the uh the bread and drink the wine the body of the christ well that makes perfect sense for me too because you're communing with this other part of of who we are so to me i i just feel like all of those early religions started out in a much different and could very well have been communal rites um but it was something not like everybody sitting in a church pew uh, kneeling down occasionally or singing a hymn or anything like that no it was a much broader probably orgiastic type of of community so so to me that's really at the root of most religions and and certainly over time you build up um more mythologies around what what's going on and uh, right down to where you're getting to the rites of elusis where people go to elusis for this experience and there's still you know some speculation of exactly what they were doing there but certainly one of it was to have this very specific special experience there which was uh, uh, could you could call it an initiation to some degree um but there's enough evidence of these plants and and especially mushrooms i i just think the mushroom is something that that i mean and this this is where to me the the difference between mushrooms and ayahuasca um without you know going into okay what are the actual feelings or visual or anything like that is is simply that the mushroom is is actually kind of pretty simple <laughs> here it is it's a psilocybin mushroom eat it <laughs> there you go it's not like marrying two plants together cooking this brew hoping it turns out to be the same as last time or maybe not um so so the mushroom to me plus its phallic a uh, shape fits in so perfect to who we are and it's so so easy in that sense too and you have to believe that people discovered it pretty early on because they're out there foraging for all sorts of things and they do learn about plants and mushrooms and which ones are are good to eat which ones you have to avoid uh which ones stimulate you in this other manner so so in that sense um the history of it i think is is clear there's plenty that has been written about that the christ was just in my opinion the culmination of so many other christ like figures that came along through all of these other religions um um and they all all of these figures and all these had the same attributes 
So that he came along, it's like, look, I don't believe in the historical Christ. Uh, the, no, and, and people interpret the Bible any way they want, but I look at it in a totally different manner as other people would. There's certainly enough um, information out there and, a, and enough iconography that um, of mushrooms in Christian churches and so on. I don't know if you're familiar with the book that Gordon Wasson wrote, Soma, Divine Mushroom of Immortality, and then John Allegro wrote his book about, about the Amanita mushroom, sacred mushroom and the cross. Uh, the All of the information is there. It's just that the, the mainstream uh, media does not want to, I mean, do you really want to push back on Christianity? Oh, God, look out, be careful. Uh, um, that's a subject that, boy, if you go out there, like if, if I were to go out there and say, well, you know what? Christ was actually a mushroom. People would want to have me committed, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, and, and I, I believe that. Um, just like uh, Wasson demonstrated that, in fact, um, the uh, Soma was a mushroom, and I believe that too. I mean, think about this for a second. Why are cows sacred? Well, if a mushroom grows out of cow dung, why not? Um, and Krishna, Krishna, he's a blue god. He He's shown with an umbrella that happens to look just like a mushroom. He's, he's associated with cows. I, I mean, it's all right there if you want to if you want to look at it. Now, I'm going to I'm going to just make a quick move up to a different location where I can plug in because my computer's saying, "Hey, you got a low yeah, battery." Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but uh, and then sort of like moving this on to my own experiences um, and and what we were doing in the um, 60s. Well, you know, part of that is, again, like I was saying, we did not have guides. We did not have um, shamans that we could work with or anything like that. We did not have Don Juan. Um, a lot of what we did was uh, at night, uh, take whatever it was, listen to music, for example. God, I mean, you know what it's like listening to music when you're high on whatever it happens to be. So rather than having a shaman singing to us, maybe it was the Beatles. <laughs> and there's a lot of really, when you hear these groups like the Beatles or someone and you listen to their music and you listen to their lyrics when you're high, you get a lot of different uh, um, ideas out of what they're actually saying. You know, like the whole thing of, of uh, uh, turn off your mind, relax, and flow downstream. Um, so, so they were, in a sense, some of our shamans, so to speak. But, but you know, we also were just um, doing things that, well, a lot of times, too, it was just, you know, it was dark at night. You just, uh, in a room or wherever, you had... Maybe you had certain kind of lights on, not like flashing strobe lights or anything, but just low light, maybe candles, um, and just kind of kicking back and um, maybe just going into a, a relaxed um, 
sort of visionary type of state, or at least a state where you're just letting it wash all over you. But you're normally doing it in a group with friends, not very often alone or anything like that. And then the, then the other side of it was that a lot of times um, we could be out in a natural setting, out in some forest somewhere where we knew and and were comfortable and felt safe. And we'd be out there um, actually taking this. I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about LSD and the whole, the, the uh, way they descri- we described it was, oh, that's drop acid. <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing to, to think about in, in that sense. But, but this was something that, that we all, felt because getting back to the whole idea, I mean, this was a real spiritual change and, and it was looking at religion as this is just um, empty ritual that has lost its soul really. And people just going through this rote type of behavior when in fact we sort of found, I mean, a lot of the books written back, in the early 1900s and stuff where the talking about the religious experience, I, I kind of think that we need to divorce ourselves even from the, the word religion, because it has too much baggage attached to it. Um, we should look at it in a, in a totally different way. And I, I guess you could say spiritual or, or some give it some type of um, uh, name, but, uh, again, I, I'm I'm uh, somebody who I don't think there's anything wrong with using uh, plants or mushrooms recreationally, as long as it's done with some kind of respect. Um, I think you can do that. You can also go after a a different kind of experience, which is more is deeper, more profound. I think that's really important. Um, but I don't, I don't condemn people that, that use it that way. I mean, other than, you know, the people that, oh, you're going to take a gram of mushrooms and you go drinking at night. That to me is kind of like, you know, why would you do that? I, I mean, I get it. It kind of keeps you, keeps you alert while you're drinking. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, okay, you could use, you could just use some kind of speed or coffee or something like that and carry on your drinking. What's the point here? Okay, yeah, you're just you're just getting high and whatever, but it's not a, a mushroom experience or anything like that. So I'm kind of like that. But uh, otherwise, in terms of people having a good time, maybe they're out in nature somewhere and they're taking a, a lower dose and they're just kind of enjoying being in that ambiance and and it, they're not expecting a full blown type of experience or something. But but no, that, that again. We're we're leaderless. <laughs> we can read <clears throat> we can read books by Timothy Leary or or uh, Ram Dass or these types of people. We can get some kind of direction from that. Uh, and certainly, I was reading all of that kind of literature, past and present, because it was in a sense at university part of my study of trying to put it all together: anthropology, mushrooms. Oh, how deep does it go? Very deep. Um, but that's kind of how I looked at, you know, what was going on then. And, and again, you know, 
good trips, bad trips. It was like you, you ultimately learned, uh, you know, like Aldous Huxley, heaven and hell, you, you could go somewhere you had to face demons that you never expected to, to encounter. Uh, that was part of it. Uh, um, but, you know, and that's where some people would have a, a, a experience where it was like, that's it. I can't do it again. I don't want to go there again. I'm afraid. Uh, and, and, you know, ultimately what you did learn too, certainly what I learned was the, it was kind of like the whole thing of the thing you have to fear is fear itself. Because once you get that fear, because we had what was called uh, um, back then, people would have a death trip. And, and all that means is like, physically you felt, Oh my God, I don't know what's going on. I feel like I'm going to die. Well, no, you weren't going to die. Everything's going to be okay. But the experience was so powerful that you just were afraid. And, and that ultimately stopped a lot of people. And that was what I would consider a, a bad trip, but you did ultimately learn something from that. Um, and that's where, you know, you get into all of this thing of set and setting and that type of information, which you would have had if you were, had some guide, some direction, something that could help you to, you know, have some type of structure. And I don't mean ultra structure, but I mean, some type of structure, like, like I would have loved to have been Native American church style, TP fire, people singing around the, this fire, somebody at the door, <laughs> somebody tending the fire, you know, I mean, those kind of structures, Hey, that's great. That's wonderful. Um, so, so in that sense, I mean, it was a real experimental time, Jason. I mean, we were on our own, <laughs> really, truly on our own. Yeah, you, you mentioned so much there. I, I mean, th these books by, by John Allegro and, <clears throat> you know, and, and like, for example, he was a, he was a scholar and, and a linguist. And, and I think a lot of people don't realize that. And, and he's been criticized too. And obviously translation is such a, such a difficult process and, and things can be taken so many ways, but, but I think one of the common arguments for a lot of these guys who were quite revolutionary in a way was, well, that doesn't make sense because there's no other evidence of it. But as, as the world gets smaller in a way, and, and certainly there, there's a benefit to that, is we have these things that I imagine much like you study, these like interdisciplinary studies and comparative studies and really being able to cross-reference things and then see, like you said, well, actually there are other references to that. And in Hinduism, which predates Christianity, they speak about Soma that was their sacrament that allowed them to experience Christ. Not in, yes. not in that word, but. Yes, 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 absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No. And, and even like Zoroastrianism, I, maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with that, but the Persian religion, and they also had Halma, which was fascinating because in Farsi, you don't pronounce the S, you pronounce it like an, like an H. In, in, in <laughs> Isn't that so, interesting? So they, they, they were saying the exact same thing, Halma, and, and in all of these cultures. And, and I think that's why South America, as you said, or Mexico have become these 
almost meccas is because there are these people who've managed to keep those traditions alive. And, and it's not something that you just necessarily read in a book. It's something that's real. Like when they're talking about a Dr. Sito, it's, it's not some imaginary concept they have. It's, and, but also again, it's like the foundation of even the civilizations we come from, like, like this idea of gnosis, this idea of, of knowing and, and not knowing like someone told me, <laughs> the Pope told me, but but a true knowledge and experiential knowledge. And you know, even something with, with Christianity that I find fascinating is, and, and probably a lot of people aren't familiar with that too, but as you said, there are these archetypes that you see in, in so many other traditions that were in that part of the world, things like Dionysus, uh, yes. Uh, all the, these Egyptian traditions, which the, the Dionysian traditions came from those, even, you know, predating those Pythagoras, who we all know. Mithras. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, like someone, these, these people who actually studied these, these things, and, and that's where they gain their gnosis from, even, even things that we consider very ordinary now, like mathematics, you know, Pythagoras was part of these, rituals, these, these uh, Aleutian rites or Dionysian rites. And, and as you said, it was this chance to, to die so that you could truly be alive. Um, you know, even as you mentioned, uh, probably a lot of people aren't familiar when you do look at a lot of like early Christian iconography, there are, there are mushrooms in the background and it's, you can kind of try and come up with other explanations about that, but it's pretty wild when you see a picture of Jesus and there's mushrooms behind them. It's, yes, why yes, are they yes. doing that? Um, yes. So when, you know, and, and again, for a lot of people, this may be very new information. I mean, even I was just thinking now in the Catholic church, you know, most Christians today, as you said, when they're taking the, the blood and body of Christ, they look at it as a metaphor but the Catholics don't. <laughs> and I think a lot of people forget that they really, they don't believe it's a metaphor. They believe that's literally the blood and the body of Christ. So if that's literally what you're ingesting, why would you be ingesting the blood and body of Christ to be able to experience Christ? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So why, and I know this is a big question, and you alluded to it a little bit, but why do you think this was such a worldwide phenomena and, and something that's still managed through, and maybe this is something we can also get into, but, but through all of these different prohibitions, and, and often when we think of prohibition, it's something we're thinking of more in, 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 a, in a more recent context, but as you said, uh, the, the many of these churches also had their own prohibitions to to prohibit this gnosis from being passed down. So, why do you think this was such a worldwide phenomena, and not just a phenomena, but but possibly the essence of not only religion but the human experience? Why why were these plants or mushrooms such a fundamental part of? of the human experience, what do you think it was trying to get to? I mean, you mentioned this God experience, but why, why do you think that's important for a human being to, to go into that or to have that type of gnosis? What do you have any sense of, of like what the end goal is for that? Because I think that's something a lot of people, 
even today, like they come down, you mentioned ayahuasca and they want to work with ayahuasca because they want to be enlightened. <laughs> That's like a very common new agey experience. But I don't think many people have also really thought like, do I really want that? What is that? What am I really looking for? Because often that also seems to me a bit of, I think part of it is coming from a genuine place that this, this, I think, place that both you and I and many people have had of, of longing for something. In, in many of these Amazonian traditions, they say it's, it, we, we have this nostalgia, we're longing for home, we're trying to remember who we are. Um, but why do you think that was such a, a vital and fundamental thing of these very disparate traditions all over the world? And yet, as you mentioned, they seem to be pointing to something very concrete and almost universal. Well, well, you know, it's, um, it's something when, when you were just talking about that, it came to mind kind of something that was talking about earlier and that is you know if you if you think about the whole human experience and first of all i, I think that that back in prehistory we're coming to realize that there was a much greater spread of knowledge worldwide and we see that and certainly in all of these just different astronomical uh, buildings and structures and all of this all over the world. Everybody was sort of tuned in to that. And I suspect they, a lot of them were tuned into these plants. Um, and, and what is it about those plants? Well, you know, I would say that as much as anything else, it, it makes you feel really good. Uh, and, and as a human, we are pleasure seekers. And, and when you, you are approaching or in to this ecstatic state, there is no real higher pleasure than that. And I mean, it is just like it is orgasmic. And, and that, too, is where you could sort of put the two together in terms of, of uh, sex and these experience similar in, in many ways in terms of ultimately what you're feeling. The difference being that those, when you're with one of those plants, you can get to a space where it goes on for quite a long time and you're just vibrating in this. So in a way, people who took a large enough amount, consumed a large enough amount of these would reach a point where they're just like, I've got to lay down and, let go and just feel this pulsing through me. And that, you know, God, you could interpret that in so many ways and different cultures interpreted it in different ways. And you could, in fact, build religions around it at some point, if that's what you want to do, if that's where you were going as an organized society. And, and it, it, they did ultimately build religions around these experiences. But I just think as, as humans, what are we really doing? We're seeking pleasure on every level, whether it's being eating some wonderful tasting food or enjoying the, the look and the aroma of a flower. Um, there's just so much beauty out there in the world. And one of the things that these, these, um, 
plants or mushrooms would do too, would open you up to even greater levels of beauty. I mean, when you think about the colors and how vibrant they become and how the world around us just becomes a pulsating uh, energy field. Um, the other side of this, which I haven't really mentioned too, is, is the, the uh, geometry that we can experience that seems to be like uh, uh, something that is, is there. We don't necessarily see it with our, you know, our mental <laughs> visual and everything like that because of our societies, but it's there. You look at all of the, and, and this is one of the things where I know for a fact that everybody was tuned in is if you look at native clothing worldwide, they all share this beautiful, colorful geometry and patterns. So I can see that and I can, you know, it's like, oh, I, I look at some of the, the, the native costumes from Eastern Europe and I go, wow, those patterns are just what they're using in Mexico. Those patterns are just what they're using in Southeast Asia. Those patterns are worldwide. And those geometric patterns, how do we come up with sacred geometry? How do we come up with the whole idea of geometric patterns? Well, <laughs> it's pretty simple. We have this experience and the geometry and the patterns manifest to us and they're colorful and they're they're in in uh, motion. So so that that to me is absolutely makes it clear that worldwide people were all tuned into this and and to go beyond that I mean and, and I can't even begin to fathom or describe how it might happen but you think too well if, if everybody can get into certain states are there uh, areas where they could be communicating on a different level I mean I don't know maybe maybe they could uh, um, but the fact that they they are aware and that this is part of their experience to me uh, simply proves that at some point in the not too distant past, peoples worldwide were pretty tuned in to what's going on, um, not only cosmically, but in our natural world and what part we are of that, which is we're connected to it all. Because part of it, part of it is just that feeling of connectivity. We're not separate we're absolutely a part of it. And, and that's, I think, maybe one of the most powerful parts of that experience is just, you know, in, in a way it's um, empathetic, empathetic in terms of, yes, and, and now I, I look at that plant in a different way. I look at that animal, on I look at the waterways, I look at the world in a different way. Um, and, and if you can do that, you, you have much more respect. You have much more reverence for the natural world. And, and you know, unfortunately, as humans, we're, we're, we're so caught up in our tools and, and how clever we are. Oh, my God, we're so clever. Look, we're, we're talking on 
these, you know, computers and someone halfway around the world, aren't we clever? Yeah, yeah, you are. And, and you're spending how many hours with your little handheld device and, and just flipping and flipping and flipping and flipping. And it's just like, what world are you living in? Take a break. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, these days I look at the world and I just think, especially these younger people and, and could be any age people with this little device in their hands, it's always in their hand. What's going on? And, and they could be walking down the street. I'm constantly seeing people that are walking down the streets or somebody's driving a car. As soon as they stop to park out, that thing comes. And even before they get out, they'll be looking at this little device. It's just like the zombie apocalypse is upon us. It's, it's insane. It is so far removed. And people talk about, you know, you get these people talking about, oh, we're going to go to Mars. We're going to go out into, why? What do we even, why do we even talk about that? That is just, that is pure insanity. Um, so really, um, to me, in a sense, you know, Jason, we have to go back to the future. Yeah, that was beautiful. We, we mentioned a little bit about these these like megalithic structures, and uh, it's something I find fascinating because even you mentioned these geometrical patterns. They're often represented in these megalithic structures the way they were built, very similar. Uh, in alignment to processional lines on the earth, in alignment to astrological zodiac signs. I mean, to a precision that's unfathomable. Yes. Um, especially if we look at time in a linear fashion. <laughs> um, even something like the pyramids, which I think a lot of people probably don't realize is, I mean, they're still standing at the great pyramids at Giza. And at one time, it was thought that they were covered with these, these blinding white marble uh, cover stones. They have a particular name. I, I yep, can't think yep. of it right now. And, and then there was this like golden pyramid on the top. But there was accounts of these you know, ancient uh, Arab travelers who, who would say like these things shone so brightly that they were blinding from you know, hundreds of kilometers away, even being here in Peru. When 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 one goes to some of these sites, I mean, the the size of some of these stones is again, it's it's almost unfathomable. So, what do you have any sense of why those were being built? Do you think that was part of just this reverence of, of like we can do this, and and there is beauty to it? There there there's it's kind of mimicking almost like this internal alchemy or this internal advancement to kind of this esoteric principle of, you know, as above, so below, or as within, without, uh, or do you have some sense that, you know, some people think they were, they were like timepieces that, that were left to, to show in a way that, that there were like we were here <laughs> you know we there there were people before you in a way and even today i i, I was reminded uh the, the hoover dam which people may not be familiar with but it, it's a dam in the u.s it's a massive structure but the guy who built it 
uh, I think it's like three kind of circles or I can't remember the exact geometry of it, but it's aligned to a certain Zodiac in the, oh, I, in I, the I didn't know that. Wow. That's yeah. interesting. And he yeah. said, you know, and that was built before, I think a lot of people really started thinking about this, like the archaeoastronomical aspects of this. And he said, it's because in a hundred, a thousand, 10,000 years, when we may not be here, this is the language that, that I think people will be able to understand that, that looking at this, you know, if I write in English, this was built by such and such at such and such date, 10,000 years, the English very, very well, <laughs> probably pretty high likelihood, it's not going to be around, but this language of mathematics, this language of, of astrology will always be around because it's it's you know even when we think in these time scales like we were talking about it's it's unfathomable these these times are so great you know we 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 think about these things like the earth is however many billion years old or you know the universe is however many you know trillions of years old you know, something, even you mentioned this idea of traveling to Mars. I always find it fascinating. Like the, the nearest galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy, you know, from what I've been told, <laughs> but uh, that it's 10,000 light years away. I mean, that's unfathomable. I mean, traveling at the speed of light, which is already unfathomable, unless maybe you've taken a large dose of mushrooms. <laughs> I mean, you know, these times and these spaces are unfathomable. So there also seems to be something uh, like, at least to me, something similar in, in these megalithic structures that seems to be mimicking that in a way. Um, but I don't know. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, 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 oh absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. You know, in, in a sense, I mean, think about it in, in a way, too, because a lot of these things were built where maybe languages were symbolic like Egypt or maybe in other places they didn't even have a lot of written languages. Well, how, how do you, how do you leave this knowledge and, and figure that it's something that's going to last for a long time? And, and why not put it into stone? Why not create a stone structure that has this knowledge built into it. And, and it's so interesting that we've, we're just starting to learn how to decipher it today. <clears throat> and in the last, let's just say 50 years, people are finally going, oh, okay, there's something else here besides just a bunch of stones put together and, oh, we think it's a temple or something like that. I mean, and that's what everybody thought in the beginning with a lot of these things. Oh, it's a temple. Well, that's just this old school thinking about it's all got to be tied to religion somehow, right? And, oh, it's a temple and they're worshiping their gods and all. No, not at all. It's ask, actually uh, a calendar or it's some type of uh, astronomical structure that is going to be there for hundreds, if not thousands of years to let uh, future generations know uh, or have this knowledge there that, like you're saying, um, who's going to uh, understand English at some point or uh, be able to decipher certain writing? And, and is that even something that is going to give you the story of these or would, would it give you just a story of uh, Christianity? 
<laughs> and so you never really know. So, so to me, all of those structures are, are put there for uh, a, okay, we can pass on this information. We're doing it. We're doing it um, in a, um, a vocal way. We're passing it down in, in our songs and all of this pre pre writing. Uh, but now um, actually we're going to put it in stone and that way we can preserve this knowledge because they must have understood at some point too that things can can get destroyed as well and get lost. And, and you know, there's a lot of different theories on that too in terms of uh, whether it be lost civilizations or lost knowledge and the whole idea that that the earth could get hit by an asteroid like in um, 11,000 BC and create havoc worldwide and wipe out cultures and so on. I mean, it clearly can happen. So the idea that you could put this stone structure in place to me just makes perfect sense. Um, and, and something at, in their time now, how they did it is some, isn't just another thing entirely. I mean, there are stones in Lebanon that are so massive, you know, rectangular stones that have been crafted some way that are so absolutely massive. You, you just are shaking your head to even consider how they were actually created, uh, as well as just the, the structures around where they're moving so many of these stones, whether it is uh, in Peru, or whether it is in a lot of the temples in Egypt, or or the Stonehenge's, or you know these these structures are we're still kind of trying to figure that out. Uh, but but yeah, that's that's kind of how I look at it, and I think that you just have to you know figure that sure they're they're putting their knowledge uh, rather than writing it out in a book with mathematical formulas, no, they're, they're actually putting it in stone. Stone lasts. Stone has, has you know, pretty much shown us that it will last a long time. And, and even, you know, I mean, stone structures are different sort, even though they do degrade and sometimes through different, you know, whether it be invasions or natural disasters or things like that, but a lot of them are still around. We're still looking at them today, which is, which is wonderful, you know? Yeah. And, and by the way, just let me just say one thing here about the whole, for example, the uh, John Allegro and um, Gordon Wasson, John Allegro, you know, th this is one of the things that really has always disturbed me tremendously because at that point in time, Gordon Wasson had just come out with his Soma book and, and he was saying, oh, gee, one of the world's great religions was based on this um, plant, this mushroom. And it's like, that is pretty, pretty amazing claim in and of itself, right? Uh, that Hinduism is based around this and the, the Rig Veda and the hymns to Soma and so on. And at the exact same time, here is one of the world's premier philologists who is on a um, team of investigators to look at the 
just discovered Dead Sea Scrolls. And who are these other people that are working with him? Mostly from the Catholic Church. Um, he's the, the one guy on this whole team that knows the languages better than all of them. He's, he's the true, the true academic. He's the true, he's like a wonder kind in his whole field of study. Gordon Lawson was, was working with uh, uh, people, linguists as well, because he was not uh, a philologist. He was not an academic in that sense at all. He was working with people in universities to help him um, understand and translate a lot of things. John Allegro could do it himself. And what does he do? He comes out and says, well, I, I've looked at these Dead Sea Scrolls. It turns out that Christianity was actually based around a mushroom, and, and it was also a, a, a sex cult, and they have all of these really interesting ways that they were relating this in a code, which, of course, they're going to be putting it in some kind of a language like that and have a lot of different metaphors and allusions and so on. So for me, I considered him to be a much higher authority in all of this than a Wasson or, or certainly these people from the Catholic Church. He comes out and he, he has done his portion of it before any of them. And he actually is like, come on, let's put this out. And they're going, no, 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 we want to wait, wait, wait. Because they, they want to uh, um, translate it according to their own needs, which is to support the church. He comes out with a completely different take on it, and he becomes an absolute outcast because of it. Why would he ruin his career over that? Well, he was an honest man. He wanted to just, this is what I found. Here it is. Boy, blasphemy. Not only that, he, he did it simply as an academic. He did not have any real ties to the mushroom. He was not somebody who was eating mushrooms and totally into this. No, he's an academic. Gordon Wasson has a lot of ties to, he's taken the mushrooms. He's really caught up in that. Allegro comes up, he's just an academic. They did not like Allegro because of that. And because of that, they poisoned the atmosphere around him and his book. I, I took his book at face value for what he had to say. Nobody could truly criticize it because nobody had the depth of knowledge as a philologist, as somebody who could translate the language that he did. So hard to, hard to actually criticize on its merits, but instead they could write him off as, as a blasphemer or, or as somebody, oh, a crazy guy. Crazy? Hey, listen, Gordon Wasson just came out and said Soma was a mushroom, and here's another uh, an academic, a true academic saying Christianity was based around a mushroom. Hey, look, at the same time, two of our major religions are based on a mushroom. Isn't that interesting? Why would Wasson and his side of things not go, oh, see, that just kind of proves what we're saying. Instead, they, they came out and were just slamming him left, right, and center. And so many people picked up on that, and it was kind of one of those situations where, oh, you're afraid to say anything positive about it because the, 
the uh, conventional wisdom by the people in this group are like, no, it couldn't possibly be. Well, yeah, guess what? They're protecting Christianity. Wasson's also a Christian. He didn't want to go into that territory either. So, so to me, I just found what Allegro had done to essentially uh, support what I believed all along was that these ancient religions, most of them were based around a mushroom, in some cases other plants, but the mushroom, um, let's just say, theory made perfect sense to me as like, well, sure, why not? Look at all the images of mushrooms we have everywhere. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to say that because I, it disturbs me to this day that people have not truly accepted his work. I think they have more than they were uh, before because of certain other people that got into it and published. I don't know if you're familiar at all with um, Jan Irvin, and uh, it was uh, they had a really great series on DVD and called, uh, I think it was Archaeostronomy and Shamanism or something like this. It was a really a good work where they explained a lot of the ancient symbols that are out there. Yeah. Yeah, there, there was another good book. Uh, I remember, I think it was called The Jesus Mysteries, uh, very similar, going into the history of early Christianity. And and again, I think these are just things a lot of people don't question, that, that there was no symbolism of Jesus for, for decades, if not, you know, 100 years after his purported birth. And Well, and there's no actual evidence of him being even a person. And, and when you look at him in terms of uh, who he is compared to all of the similar, let's just call them godheads that came before him, he's just the, the latest version of all of them. And yet people just, or the church let's just needs to carry on with this mythology of him as a real person. And they go to great lengths to try and prove it somehow. <laughs> you know, I mean, no, you, I'm sorry. Even the, the, the first, the first account was was Saul or Paul, and he never described Jesus. He described Christ. He he was overcome by this this light, this light consciousness that was Christ, which is God. <laughs> there, there was never a man there. It was it was, and he was he had to prostrate before it because it was so powerful. Yeah. And yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I, I mean. I don't think we have to look too far. I mean, you know, the, the church or the establishment defaming someone, burning the book or buying up all the books, labeling them as crazy. I mean, uh, it's there's going many on parallels today. today but, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's very fascinating. Um, I mean, I, I feel like we could probably talk for hours about this. Um, so <laughs> no maybe, yeah, maybe we'll have to do a part two just on this. Yeah. I think there's, there, there's so much there and it's, but I think it's, it's, it's really vital. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, I think his name is Brian Murescu. He, he just wrote a book. Um, oh, he was the one that was the, trying to prove that uh, the, um, sacrament at Eleusis was actually air god. I, I, I you know, yeah. I, I think that 
whole idea and theory is just absolutely wrong. And, and well, I, I don't know not- if it was Aragot, because he was also looking at the origins of Christianity. I'm trying to think of the name of his book. It's it's slipping my mind. But I know essentially, the book you're talking about. Yeah. But but essentially saying that that there was some sacrament that that it was probably a drink, uh, you know. That, again, there's there's different theories of that, but but you know, I was reminded even this idea that because we were talking about this idea of like the, the blood of Christ, which is often translated as wine, but but that's that's literally a mistranslation. Again, if you look at the linguistics of it, it's in Greek, it's pharmakon, which is where we get the word pharmaceutical pharmacy from it you know literally by drinking the the blood of christ you're drinking a pharma you're taking a drug you're taking some substance that's putting you in touch with christ and you know i i just i think there's all of these clues and it's you know it, it takes a bit of i think in a way a shift of consciousness to be able to be open to all of those because we are as you said you know where we do have these blinders whether we want to admit it or not it's just and it's not even an inherently a bad thing it's just part of who we are the societies we've been brought up in the, the worldviews, everything we hear and and it does seem like these these tools the these mushrooms or plants are are very amazing sacraments in that way to shake us up in that way, you know, like, like we often need to be shaken out of, of in, 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 in Vedic philosophy, they would call it the veil or in Christianity, that's what apocalypse means. It means it literally means the lifting of the veil. And we've been indoctrinated that it's the end of the world as if it's the end of the physical world, rather than the end of, of the, the false world that we've created. And to lift the veil is to see the world as it actually is to experience Christ. That's the second coming of Christ is the apocalypse. Yes. And it's not something to be afraid of. It, it's our own nature. It's who we are. It, it's what we're all looking for. And, and so, and again, that's where, you know, translation can be so tricky and. <laughs> um, oh, oh, it can. Yeah. Well, well, in 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 uh, um, Hindu religion, it's Maya, right? And Maya is the general waking state that we're in, and that's considered an illusion. Yeah. So uh, I, I think we're almost at two hours. So I don't want to take up too much of your time, but maybe. You know, let's see, but I, I would love to have you back sometime because I think there's there, there's another two or three hours at least we could go into <laughs> of all of this stuff. But um, I'd like to come back to, to mushrooms um, because obviously we've been speaking more about the, the sacramental use. And as I mentioned earlier, when I was a kid, I, I remember being taught that there was no there was no nutritive value to these mushrooms. It was just something people ate. And again, I remember thinking that was crazy. I mean, a, a big part of my family came from Eastern Europe. And and that's a that's a big tradition. There's people go out looking for mushrooms, and 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 I like to think about that in the same way as any tradition. Like when you think about these megalithic structures, people just don't build those for no reasons. <laughs> Nobody does something for no reason. Uh, nobody goes out and and takes the time and the effort uh, to gather these mushrooms if they have no nutritional nutritional value. Like these people knew that not only they, they had a tremendous amount of nutrition, but also these, these very uh, particular medicinal values, which it seems like we're just now beginning to, maybe not just now, 
it, it's coming to light, but it seems like there's a lot more awareness of that, that there's, you know, quote unquote, scientific research going into that. So that also is one of your, your areas uh, of mushrooms. So I know that's kind of a, a big topic, but, but what would you say, how would you look at mushrooms in, in terms of their nutrition, in terms of their medicinal values? Because I think that's something people are coming to terms with. I think more and more people have maybe heard of reishi or chaga or lion's mane and that maybe this one is good for this or I'm losing my memory, so I'm going to take lion's mane or I'm getting sick, so I'm going to take reishi. But but what what is going on with with those mushrooms that uh, you know even like in China it's there's as you mentioned earlier that there's a huge history of, of medicinal mushroom use that that even these these ancient Taoist and and uh, you know Confucian scholars talking about these these plants or these mushrooms of immortality that they they give us the, these long healthy robust lives that maybe there's only five plants you need to take and you know that kind of that will give you your your health and well-being so what did those chinese uh ancients know and that, that that these mushrooms had this this very potent medicinal value to them well you know i i like to think about mushrooms i i call them the the forgotten food and, and i call them the missing dietary link and, and that's primarily to us in North America. I mean, the Europeans uh, eat a lot of mushrooms and, and certainly in Asia, they eat a lot of mushrooms. And when I first went to work on the mushroom farm in 1973, classical nutritionists in the U.S. basically said, hey, they have no food value. Well, the reason they said that actually was kind of interesting is that they are very low in calories. If a food has no calories, they just think, now, what's the point, right? Well, um, the fact is mushrooms, and again, every mushroom is going to have a different nutritional profile. So that's the other thing you always have to remember. It's not like, you know, okay, all apple varieties, which are pretty similar in their nutritional profile, but no, every mushroom has a different nutritional profile, 20 to 40% protein, uh, pretty high quality protein. It's got uh, most uh, all with the exception of one or two of the essential amino acids. They are low in fat. Um, they're mostly carbohydrate, but these are carbohydrates that are positive carbohydrates. They're slow acting. One of them is called mannitol, very slow acting, slow to digest carbohydrate. Another one called trehalose. Mushrooms do not contain starch. Starch is, you know, what we get from all those grains and stuff and, and, you eat refined starches and boom, up you go with the glucose and then down the other side. So um, mushrooms, because of these carbohydrates, and one of the primary ones too is what's called a beta-glucan, which makes up 50% of the cell wall of a mushroom. So, so mushrooms are very slow to digest and they are very high in fiber. So they will be feeding our microbiome as well. So, so they're in that sense a prebiotic, a high in uh, potassium, phosphorus, uh, B vitamins, B1, 2, and 3. They have up to 25% of some of those specific B vitamins. So they're really a very good food, very tasty. Go with just about 
anything. You can cook them in so many different ways. One of the things that is key to a mushroom too is cook it properly. Um, uh, you know, have you ever heard a, a young five-year-old or six-year-old go, oh, mushrooms, God, they're slimy. They, God, I hate those things. <laughs> well, you have them cooked properly. You, you, uh, you cook them on a high heat and in whatever your oil happens to be. I like to brown them up. Um, I mean, I can eat a lot of mushrooms at a sitting just as a main or one course of the dinner I'm eating or something like that. I can eat 100 to 200 grams of fresh mushrooms easily. Um, but you can put them in almost anything, stir fries, eggs. Um, there's nowhere you can't utilize them. They're just a really great food. And they've known that for a long time in, in Asia and, and Europe. Uh, a lot of studies that have been done show that, that populations that uh, eat mushrooms, um, the people that do, they live longer than people that don't. Part of that is due to the these beta-glucans, the beta-glucans in mushrooms are what give them their immunological activity. And the way I describe that is, is as uh, potentiating the immune system. So we actually have um, receptor sites for beta-glucans. They, they get down there, they link up with these receptor sites. They can stimulate the production of immune cells when we need them. <clears throat> Otherwise, the mushrooms sit in the background, you know, eating mushrooms or even supplementing with mushrooms is kind of like, think about it as, as preventive medicine. And, you know, to me, diet is preventive medicine. We want our food to be our medicine. We want, you know, diet is the foundation of our health, period. You've got to have a good diet to be healthy. Um, so <clears throat> putting mushrooms into that diet is, is just an important addition. And, and um, don't think about mushrooms as, you know, especially supplement-wise, I'm going to take this today, my cold is gone tomorrow. <clears throat> Not how they work. It's kind of like think of them as you would think of a vitamin. I mean, when you take a vitamin, whether it's C or D or something like that, you don't go, God. I took this vitamin D yesterday and I feel so wonderful today. It's just fantastic. I really recommend it. No, think about it as something <clears throat> that is there in the background. Um, over a period of time, you should, you know, feel like, oh, maybe I'm not getting as many colds or flus or something like this because it is, it does have antiviral activity. But again, if, you, if you've got a bad lifestyle, you don't get enough exercise, you're living in a city, you're breathing bad air and all the rest. Well, I mean, it's not going to help you too much. But, but regardless, I'm always recommending to people that they put mushrooms into their diet. And, and then if they want to take a step further, uh, like um, a little higher level of immunological potentiation, Go ahead and supplement with uh, with a mushroom supplement. Uh, one I would recommend to a lot of people would be reishi. Reishi's um, a mushroom that's been revered in China for thousands of years. You see it in their art, their architecture. It's a, a wonderful mushroom. It's got a very one of the highest levels of beta glucans of, of all the different medicinal mushrooms, and it also has compounds called triterpenoids, which are very good for the liver. So, so it is kind of like a mushroom that 
It has the beta-glucans, which most of the other medicinal ones have. All mushrooms do, but the medicinal ones have a beta-glucan that's got a specific architecture to give you that immunological potentiation. Um, But reishi also has the triterpenoids, which most of these other medicinal mushrooms do not have. So it's kind of an exceptional mushroom that way. So that's the first one I recommend if you want to supplement with one particular mushroom reishi would be the one so so again um they are just a wonderful food that is missing in the north american diet we've got now six to eight different species in our markets which is fantastic it wasn't like when when i was uh, a mushroom grower in the 70s i mean the agaricus was the the only mushroom in the markets at that point in time. So that's all today, six to eight species. It's amazing. I mean, we've got these wonderful, have you, have you ever had uh, fresh shiitake? Yeah. Yeah. God, uh, it's just a wonderful mushroom. The flavor, the odor, I mean, shiitake is, it's my favorite edible mushroom. Um, there's others. I, I mean, I like most of them, but I mean, enoki talkie, you ever had enoki talkie? This package of, you know, like you look at them, they're like there's a thousand mushrooms in there <laughs> with these really slender stems and tiny little cap, and they're all bundled together. And they are so delicious. You strip them all away and you fry them up, and they're crunchy and got a nice flavor. I mean, it's just a really a whole nother area of food that a lot of people are missing, and there's no reason. Uh, anymore not to be able to, I mean, they're a little more expensive than some of the other vegetables, but, you know, and, and I say vegetable, they're not a vegetable, but they're in the vegetable section. Um, so, so yeah, I, I really advocate for people to eat mushrooms, put them into your diet. They're a great food. They're a healthy food. And again, this gets back to really uh, food as medicine and preventive medicine, because I think, you know, we have to do things that keep us healthy. We have to stay away from things that are degrading our health. And that's where diet is just so important. And that's where putting mushrooms into your diet can really help eliminate all that other stuff that's not doing you any good, <laughs> like processed foods. Oh, God. You know, I mean, I suppose where you are in Peru, you don't have to worry as much about processed foods everywhere. Uh, but you know, I mean, eating a, um, like here in, in uh, Hobart, they've got a, a Saturday market, just farmer's market with all sorts of great food. God, it's so wonderful to be in that. And, and you know, when you find a, a, a just an established market too, that brings in organic produce and just does a good job of all of that, it's just a wonderful thing because, you know, eating good food is a you know, it's, it's something that's very pleasurable yeah, and healthful. <laughs> so adding mushrooms to the diet, if people are interested in, in, in supplementing with mushrooms, because that seems like a really popular thing now, whether it's in tinctures or powder forms, uh, it seems like that there's a number of mushrooms that have become quite popular. As you mentioned, reishi, chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail, do you have any recommendation uh, of, of what people should, should look out for? Are there 
like certain health conditions that one mushroom may be better? Are, are there are there ways of sourcing those mushrooms that are more beneficial? Because I would imagine like any market now, there must be a lot of uh, adultering and and who knows exactly what you're getting. As you mentioned before, like where are those mushrooms coming from? How are they being collected or grown? There must be a lot of factors in that as well. Well, there are. And you know what? Um, one of the things that's happening in the supplement world, which is really unfortunate, is that uh, mushrooms are really expensive to grow. Um, so uh, it's very, you, you really can't grow mushrooms in North America and then turn them into a supplement. For example, you, you go to the market, you buy uh, shiitake mushrooms, maybe it's going to cost you $10 a pound or something like that. Well, maybe the grower is getting $5 a pound. Well, mushrooms are 90% water. Supplements are dried powders. That $5 that he gets for that pound of shiitake. Now he has to get $50 for that same pound of shiitake. The, the uh, economics does not work for uh, mushrooms grown in the United States and put into the supplement market. It just doesn't work. That's why we grow all of our mushrooms in China and have been doing that since the 90s because as a commercial mushroom grower, I knew the economics of it. China's the where all of the mushroom, recent mushroom science and uh, um, any kind of really, uh, well, even growing, China grows 85% of the world's mushrooms right now. So, so uh, and the reason that I'm bringing this up is because what has happened is that companies in the United States now grow mycelium. Uh, and if you were to grow mycelium and it's pure, 100% mycelium, it'd be like, okay, that's that's good. That that works. It has beta glucans. It doesn't have the same level of compounds that you would find in an actual mushroom, which is why when you're out there looking for a psilocybin mushroom, you're looking for a mushroom. You're not looking for mycelium. <laughs> you're looking for an actual mushroom. So what what companies are doing is they're growing the mycelium on sterilized grain. And at the end of a grow out period where the mycelium grows and covers this grain, and that's 30 to 45 days, they'll take that, they'll, they'll take it out of their container, they'll dry it, they'll grind it to a powder, grain and all, and sell it and call it a mushroom. How is that possible? Well, you can do a lot of things in business that uh, is not ethical. Uh, and I can just consider it totally adulterated. We, we do tests. My company does all sorts of actual uh, testing for the active compounds. We test for beta-glucans. We test for starches. We test for ergosterol, which is the fungal sterol, and another compound called ergothionine. I did a study six years ago where I bought 40 of these products off the internet. I tested them all uh, as along with dried mushrooms and mushroom extracts. These products, um, well, well, a normal mushroom product would have 25 to 60% beta-glucan, next to no alpha-glucan, which is the starches, because mushrooms do not have starch. These particular products, now remember, they're mostly grain. 
because this they've grown this mycelium on the grain, but it's mostly the grain. They're not separating it. Those products were, instead of being 25 to 60% beta-glucan, they were on average 6% beta-glucan. Um, the alpha-glucan, which are the starches, instead of being like with a mushroom, no starch, so it has a little bit of glycogen, which shows up as you know a couple percentage, these were 30 to 60% alpha-glucan, which is starch. So essentially what all that is demonstrating is that those products are mostly grain starch. They're selling those products, Jason, as mushroom. So you can go out into the marketplace and you can see these, what are being sold and labeled as mushrooms when they're not, they're grain starch. So people are unaware of that. Now, some of those products might be labeled properly if you turn them over to the fax panel and it says mycelium. And in the fine print, it would say myceliated rice or myceliated oats. So they, they, you know, some of the companies, but many of the companies that purchase those products as raw materials, they have no idea because it's being sold to them as mushroom. So they put it out and they, they claim it's mushroom and it's got all the benefits of mushrooms. They're not mushrooms. They're grain starch with a bit of mycelium in it. And, and that's, those products are 50% of the market, if you can believe it. 50% of what you would find in a store or the marketplace are those products. One of the top brands out there in the, in the marketplace is that product. And it is really unfortunate because people who think they're getting a actual mushroom product are not, they're getting grain starch. And, and you know, it, it's funny because a lot of people don't eat grains. Other people don't want starches, these sugars, uh, uh, grain sugars, they, they don't want anything to do with them. And yet they have no idea that that's what they're getting. They think they're getting a mushroom product. Some, sometimes people have cancer or these types of serious illnesses and they want to uh, get a mushroom product to help with their immune system while it's being torn down by chemotherapy or something. They're buying a, a, a bunch of starch thinking they're getting mushroom. So this is a huge issue. And, and I've, I've published a study about that in 2015. A lot of people now are very aware of it. So you'll see products now saying no grain, no starch. Um, uh, and that is something, no mycelium. That is something that has moved out. It has resonated in the marketplace, but still there's companies selling these and people buying them. And it's really unfortunate. So you have to be very careful. If it says that your so-called mushroom product is made in the USA, it's, it's actually grain starch that you're buying. Mm, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh man, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. You mentioned ratio. Are there other, are there other ones that, that come to your mind that you would recommend as, as general supplements to people? Oh, sure. I mean, um, you know, in a, in a way, all of the, the mushrooms, what we would call the medicinal mushrooms would have this immunological activity. Um, for example, like shiitake or maitake, that's what we would expect as the major benefits from those. Um, but others, like, for example, lion's mane has these compounds in it 
that stimulate what's called nerve growth factor. And we, we produce nerve growth factor and it helps to organize and, and helps to, uh, the production of the production of neurons. As we age, we produce less of this. So they've done studies in Japan, pretty good studies, actually, some clinical trials where they've demonstrated that uh, lion's mane mushroom will stimulate the production of this nerve growth factor. And they've shown in certain types of tests. Now, again, this is all, you know, small scale clinical trials, um, but they have demonstrated that that does help with memory after they've done tests on control groups and the people taking the mushroom supplement. So, and, and that's why people buy lion. Lion's mane right now is our number one seller. Um, it, it, uh, because it's, it's what people call a nootropic. Are you familiar with the term nootropic? Mm -hmm. That's the category. And, you know, it's kind of like, there's this whole idea of biohacking and, and anything that can, can sort of help to cope or manage or, or stimulate, uh, your organism in some way to make you more um like a lot of times more productive in some way or more focused or or maybe your memory's a little bit better so that uh, is where lion's mane fits into that and the whole nootropic category it's just such an interesting thing where you know just just like the whole biohacking idea is interesting i, I mean and and i I don't know whether I totally subscribe to this idea of biohacking, but it's also just kind of a term that's like, okay, if you consume certain plants or um, other substances that will, in a way, um, stimulate or potentiate you to reach a higher level of uh, um, whatever it happens to be activity. Um, so. You know, that's kind of, but, but, you know, biohacking too, they use all sorts of uh, synthetics and things like that, which I don't necessarily agree with. Um, so, so that's where lion's mane fits into that and has made it so popular. Um, cordyceps uh, is a real interesting mushroom that's not really uh, a normal um, <coughs> fleshy fungus is what we would call a normal mushroom especially one that you eat. This is a small blade-like uh, fungus that grows off of insects. Um, highly revered in China, grows on a caterpillar. They actually call it a caterpillar fungus, but that's wildcrafted, very expensive in China. We can grow a similar species that has been used interchangeably and it's, it's quite affordable. And so we grow the cordyceps and it's been used for general weakness. So if, if you're um, having trouble, you're, you're in a, an illness, you're having trouble getting over the last hump on that illness or something, that's where they would prescribe cordyceps. So um, useful for fatigue, lack of energy. Well, of course, who's going to pick up that and start to sell it? Well, anybody who's in the energy drink or performance area. So that's where cordyceps has kind of been slotted in. But Again, it's been used for uh, thousands of years in traditional Chinese medicine and, again, kind of for general fatigue. So 
cordyceps, that's where its use is probably best um, utilized. Um, uh, there's chaga. And one of the things I always tell people is like, look, if you go out on the internet and read about chaga, just forget about 90% of about what you're reading because it's all just marketing speak. You know how some things get, get end up being like um, a panacea. There's mm-hmm. nothing it can't cure. Uh, it's the king of mushrooms all of a sudden. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> but But marketing-wise, they love to promote it that way. And, oh, is there anything Chaga can't do? God, I, it drives me <laughs> nuts when I see that because I'm like, God, panaceas. I mean, please help me out here. <laughs> so, so, you know, Chaga has been traditionally used for people who have stomach issues, uh, alimentary canal issues. That That's a, a common use of of chaga, um, they brew it. In, you can brew it into a tea. Have you ever seen a chaga? Actually, I, I don't know that I have. I, I've seen reishi, but I, I've seen turkey tail. I think I've seen lines made. I don't know that I've actually seen chaga. Chaga is like it's not a mushroom. It's not mycelium. It's this gnarly black growth that comes off the side of a tree. Hmm. The tree has been infected with a fungal mycelium <coughs> and it's trying to fight off the infection and it produces what is considered uh, a canker. So they have a disease category called canker diseases of trees. That's what a chaga is. And, and look, it gets called a mushroom because, you know, it kind of like fits into the category, but it's not a mushroom. It's not even mycelium. It's, it's just this gnarly, irregular, dark growth. And uh, you can brew it into a tea or, or supplement it. And I, w- I always recommend it to people who have uh, stomach issues or, or any kind of issues that way. If you have irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease, that's probably a good place for, for trying chaga to see if it helps at all. Um, it's not the king of mushrooms, sorry. <laughs> uh, 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 the other one that's one of our top ones would be... Um, <clears throat> Uh, let's see, we talked about reishi, we talked about uh, uh, lion's mane, cordyceps, chaga. Well, those are the top four. And then, of course, turkey tail is another one that's that's becoming quite popular. And that's something that really is great immunologically. So that's where if somebody really feels like they're just not coping with all of the different, um, I don't know, diseases that come along um the turkey tail is definitely one and it's shown great immunological potentiation so that's where it kind of fits in and and you know there's also you could put maybe three or four of them together and take a combo product if you wanted to we have one combo product we sell which is five of the different mushrooms we we sell mostly uh, powders mushroom extract powders um Namex sells raw materials to other companies. Then we have a, a, a retail line called Real Mushrooms where people can get them and it's a retail product. But at any rate, five together. There, there's, you know, have you ever seen the products out there too that are like, you, you're looking at the label and 
God, is there anything they didn't put into this product? <laughs> you know, it's like the, the companies that think the more we can put in, the better. And, and it's like, no, all you're doing is just like dumbing down all the good stuff. And that's the same with, with people that put out uh, these mushroom combo products. I mean, the first one that came out was about 10 years ago. It was 10 different and these were what I call myceliated grain products. And then the next thing I know, somebody came out with like 16. And then someone else came out with 24 species. I'm just like, good God, all you're doing is, is lessening the amount of the really good ones and putting in all these marginal ones. And somehow that's supposed to be better. You know, it, it's this whole marketing arena where the marketing People just think, oh, God, the more the better. And it's like, no, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, don't go beyond five. And, and so, I mean, I take, I take um, one of our products, and, and it's something that I designed a, a couple of years ago when COVID hit, which was it's got mushroom extract. It's got um, 2,000 IUs of vitamin D. And it's got um, 30 milligrams of zinc. I used to take zinc and vitamin D all the time years ago. And then I kind of like, you know, I'm not a great supplement taker, actually. I would put reishi in my coffee in the morning, which is kind of great for me. But then I thought, well, I should get back into taking zinc again, and I should be taking vitamin D again. And I thought, well, why not put it all together in a, in a mushroom product? So I did. And that's what I take every day, as well as uh, extra vitamin D and um uh, vitamin C. And that's kind of my supplement regime. Um, I, I, I truly believe that if you're eating properly, you're going to get most of what you need. Um, if there's specific areas where you think a supplement might help, do it. Like, like for example, vitamin D. Absolutely. God, I mean, you've probably read about um, how so many people that have issues with COVID, they get COVID and 50% of the people that end up in hospital have really low levels of vitamin D. And it's just like, God, supplement. Why haven't they been handing that out on the street corner for, to people? You know what I mean? It's just like, why, why are we not talking prevention here? You know, why are we waiting till people have to be hospitalized? I mean, why aren't we out there saying, Hey, look, you know, and the other thing is overweight people are the people that are going into the hospital. Why aren't we saying, okay, time to uh, get serious about diet here. Um, you need to stay out of those processed food aisles. Well, sh really, that's what American business is built on. Yeah, I think you, uh, you, you probably just got our video uh, taken down from YouTube with that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's very strange times in that regard. I mean, very much like we were talking about the the thing with the the church and the the demonization of of John Allegro's work, and it's it is. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can take it, but certainly there are there are forces out there that are that are malevolent, and uh, you know, I think some is is probably just negligence and and not wanting to look into deeper things, but. Uh, but yeah, that, that's a real thing. It's, uh, and, and again, that's probably something a lot of people don't know about is that I think obesity, I don't remember the exact number, but it, it's like eight 
increases your your chance of death eightfold with COVID. Yeah, Vitamin yeah. D, it was a huge, it was a majority. I mean, it was well over 50%. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I think it was close yeah. to 60%, 70% of the people yeah. who were very sick were severely vitamin D deficient. And Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about, about mushrooms is I was telling you, we test for a compound called ergosterol. It's a fungal sterol. You can you can uh, expose that to UV light, and that UV turns that ergosterol into vitamin D2. And, and we get our vitamin D from exposure of our skin to UV radiation, and that turns cholesterol, our sterol, into vitamin D3. So, so, you know, we are actually producing now vitamin D from mushrooms. So it's coming from an absolute natural source. And if you look at how vitamin D3 is mostly made, it is a terrible chemical process where they're using a lot of heavy chemicals to ultimately, I mean, it comes from a natural source. It all comes from lanolin of sheep's wool. That's primarily where vitamin D3 comes from. And then you have to, you have to get it out of the wool first, and then you have to process that lanolin and, and um, extract and, and turn it into uh, the vitamin D3. And, and it's quite a process with this. You just take regular mushroom powder, put it under a lamp, and that will turn the ergosterol into vitamin D2. And so we are creating that now. And that was, you know, when I said this, this product that I'm taking that we, we created has vitamin D in it. Well, that's from a mushroom. So I, I love the idea that here it is, this lowly mushroom can be producing vitamin D and D2 it, it works uh, just as well as vitamin D3 in terms of long-term supplementation with it. So, uh, in fact, we're working one of the, with one of the top vitamin D um, researchers uh, in the world right now um, with the, the vitamin D, and we're getting ready to really ramp up our production of it because I just think it's it's like everybody needs to be supplementing with vitamin D one way or the other. It's, uh, and especially those people in the, the northern climates, we just don't get enough sunlight. Um, so, so that's really, um, I, I just think that's so cool. And, and, and by the way, in case, in case you're worried about getting the, the thing take your video taken down you just got to chop it into two parts there jason <laughs> first part and second part <laughs> i think fortunately in this know, case the, the audience isn't quite big enough for it to get taken down but uh if yeah, yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> I, I, I get it but the censorship right now is outrageous yeah. it is outrageous the censorship that's going on in the u.s especially i, I i've never seen anything like it it's it's absolutely neo-mccarthyism at its worst. Yeah. 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 It's shocking. And, and yet, it, at least for me, uh, I think not at the same time. Uh, I mean, I think part of that could have been even the, the field we're in. It's, it, it's pretty apparent that, that there are forces who have, who have, again, for different reasons, but even this thing of prohibition, I mean, there, there, there's a very real reason why that exists. 
the power of government, the power of prohibition, the power of, of censorship, it, it serves very particular forces. And I mean, even here in Peru, it, it was very sad. I, uh, you know, I don't know if you're familiar, but, but Peru, according to the statistics, has had one of the highest COVID death rates. And and Peru has had one of, if not the strictest lockdown, and and I don't think that's a, that's a correlate correlation. It's a direct causation. Yeah, People were only allowed that. to leave their houses in, in the beginning of the pandemic for for almost five months. They were only allowed wow. to leave their house for one hour a day to go to the indoor grocery store, uh, a pharmacy, or a hospital. And and a lot of architecture in Peru, it's it's very basic. There's no windows. It's these dingy little structures, no airflow, no sunlight. That's horrible. And and it is. It's horrible. And uh, you see where those policies end up creating a, a tremendous amount of suffering and ultimately death. And it's uh, oh yeah, ab- absolutely. Where 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 a lot of people like in the north are uh, in their nice. Manhattan apartments sitting back, uh, you know, with their computers, having food delivered to the door and just still going on. Life just goes on as normal. And, and it's like, yeah, who gets hit the hardest? It's the, the lower classes. They're the ones that really get hit the hardest by it and, and whose businesses get uh, uh, terminated and, and uh, who's, who lose their jobs and all the rest. Yeah, it's, it's uh, been shocking what's, what's gone on and really, really unfortunate. Yeah. With the with the vitamin uh, D supplement, is that is that a process that you can do with any mushroom, or there's certain mushrooms that are that are higher in uh, I forget how you called it ergotamine. Was that the? Uh, and it's uh, ergosterol. It's like ergosterol, uh-huh. just like just when you think of cholesterol, it's a col uh, cholesterol colosterol. So. One is, uh, is ergocalciferol, the other is colocalciferol. Um, and, and you can, you can take your fresh mushrooms and, you know, remember the whole, the whole key to it is uh, surface area. So it's not like you can just put the mushroom out there. Uh, and if you did, you could put it out there, gills up and leave it a half hour in direct sunlight. And you would boost up the, the level to probably of that mushroom to maybe it would be give you something like a hundred or 200 IUs. But if you were to slice it so you could expose more surface area, you're going to increase it and have that same amount much higher. Um, You're still not going to get up to the levels that I would consider to be important because the, like the experts would say 5,000 IUs a day is, is what you should be taking. Not the, I don't know what they, the level now that the, the U.S. would say is this, the standard RDA or something. It'd be um, 600 IUs or something like that. No, 5,000 would be much, much better to maintain that high level. I mean, they're just finding out so many things about how important vitamin D is, is to so many different of our um, bodily processes. It's just a super important vitamin. And the, the other thing about mushrooms too, which is, which is interesting is this other compound called uh, ergothionine, um, which is found primarily, one of the major sources of it is mushrooms. Um, It is found to be a very strong um, antioxidant, 
We do not create ergothionine, and yet we find it in a lot of places in our body. And scientists have been trying to figure out exactly why. And these happen to be areas that are high in oxidative stress. So they think, well, okay, this is this is a pretty important compound. They're even thinking about it as a possible new vitamin. Um, but mushrooms are one of the major sources of ergothionine. So that's another reason why mushrooms are such a healthful food. And we, we actually even have um, a ergothionine uh, product that we sell in the, in the retail line. I take that every day, actually, five milligrams of ergothionine. And it actually is something that we don't grow yet. Uh, because we we do do not like try to um, extract it specifically, so having five milligrams that actually we get from a uh, process that uses yeast to create it, and so I take that every day, and I think ergothionine—they're calling it a longevity uh, type of product—and. I think that's probably one of the other reasons, you know, mushrooms are just kind of a longevity food, I, I think. And I think they're, um, I mean, you know, look at me, I'm a hundred years old. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> you think that's why when you were mentioning like this idea of even this, this shamanic, this more shamanic take of, of Christmas, for example, the, the, the drying of the, the mushrooms on the tree. Uh, I mean, that, that seems a fairly traditional process of sun drying things. Do you think there was there was like an inherent wisdom or, or knowing that, that that potentially that was uh, uh, enhancing some of the effects of the mushrooms by by putting in them in the sun like that? Well, 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 you know what? Um, I, I'm not sure that that was the case, but but I I have read that with Amanita muscaria, drying it out is important, and somehow it it denatures some of the compounds in there that we don't want. Um, and the whole idea of putting it on the tree to dry it. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I've seen that and read about it. And, and, uh, you know, if I were actually really wanted to dry things, I would probably just stick them out face up on a, on a tray or, or uh, which is what they do in China uh, is they take them out. And I've got pictures of these racks uh, where they've got the shiitake all face up in beautiful rows filling these racks. And, and if you're there in season, you can be driving through some villages and they've got these racks all along the sides of the roads drying out in the sun. And you think about that. And I think they probably are unaware of the fact that that is actually increasing the vitamin D content of those mushrooms. Um, but that's what it's doing. And unfortunately, as the world uh, goes and mechanizes more and more. Of course, what they're doing over there now is 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 uh, uh, having these forced air dryers where, oh yeah, we can put them in there. It's faster. It moves better for our business needs. And so now fewer and fewer of those mushrooms are being actual sun-dried like they, they were in the past. There's still probably a lot of it going on, but they're slowly moving to forced air dryers where it's all inside of just a regular dryer and there's a heat and a fan and all of that. So that, that, that's kind of like, you 
people do not know what you're doing. You've got to leave them in the sun. <laughs> Reminds I, me I, driving I, through I, India and on the main road, it's not even on the side of the road, but there'll be like a woman and she takes up half the road just drying her stuff. So you have to go around and then there's another woman doing it on the other side of the road. So you like zigzag along the road because everyone's just drawing their stuff in the road. That's absolutely <laughs> right. You, you see that in China at times where out in the countryside, they're drying out their grain or something and they just got it on a mat. <laughs> or sometimes they even just put it right on the, the concrete if it's a place where, you know, it's like they can just clean off the concrete and they just lay it down on the concrete to dry out and you're just like, Wow, that is that is really taking advantage of natural forces, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, direct sunshine, you can't get more direct sunshine. The heat that's coming off that road, it's uh, it's pretty ingenious. Yeah, 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 and it's perfect. Oh, thank you very much for putting in this nice new paved road. It's perfect <laughs> for my drying my products here. Yeah, 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 it is a, it is kind of a wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, Jeff, we're we're coming up on three hours almost, if you can believe it. Um, I, I yeah, I, I can. <laughs> <laughs> Is are, are there any are there any topics that we didn't get to that you'd like to address? Well, none that come to mind. Um, Right now, I mean, it is such a deep topic all in all, but, uh, you know, we covered a lot of ground. I mean, we covered ground that I don't normally cover because I'm not doing that much podcasting with someone like yourself that's dealing with the psychoactive side of things. But more and more, um, you know, and, and what's happening now in North America is because of all of the the fact of prohibition being lifted and now, now uh Doctors can start to use psilocybe mushrooms in their practices, you know, whether it's uh, psychiatrists or psychologists in Canada, you can actually get a license to utilize uh, psilocybin mushrooms in your practice. And in Canada, actually, Health Canada is giving out licenses to companies to actually grow psilocybin mushrooms um, in, in Vancouver. Um, there's actually stores, small stores. Now you can go into Jason and buy uh, encapsulated micro doses of psilocybin mushrooms, right? Walk in off the street into one of these stores. It's just like Vancouver's always been kind of a place that, that is on the edge of a lot of that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, look in, in, in Canada, for the most part in the last 50 years, nobody really went to jail for smoking a joint or having small amounts or anything like that. The only people that went to jail were smugglers. Um, so, so very different environment in that way. Uh, so, so it's all, you know, to, in my mind, I'm like, this is, this is a wonderful uh, um, change. I hope, I hope we can maintain it, which is not always easy. Sometimes the things change and then all of a sudden they go right back for whatever reason. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, um, um, so, so we live in, in a time where finally seeing prohibition lifted, which I never thought was going to happen considering, you know, and just the fact that I lived with prohibition for most of my life. And, and the funny thing is, is now that we've got the prohibition lifted, for example, of cannabis, I mean, I don't even smoke it anymore. So it's like, <laughs> I only smoked it when it was illegal. That's, <laughs> I mean, occasionally I'll have a toke here and there, but 
not like before where I'm just kind of a daily smoker of it back in the seventies and eighties and things like that. But now no. And, um, so, so it's, it's an interesting time in that sense, just like the work that you're doing and being in Peru and, and, you know, I, another person that I work with, um, and is a good friend of mine is Dennis McKenna. So you're probably very aware of Dennis and I probably have met him and, and things like that. And Dennis, Dennis actually was doing, um, work in the sacred Valley with a, a, um, facility there and bringing people down and doing all of that. And, and, uh, you know, he's still actively involved in that and maps and all those types of, I mean, there's lots of conferences and stuff going on these days. And, you know, again, I, I haven't really kept up on it just because I've just had other things that I'm doing. And, and, you know, our business has just gone absolutely crazy in the last five years. Um, mushrooms have sort of come of age in a sense. It's kind of like that, that uh, tipping point, you just kind of reached that tipping point about five or six years ago. And, you know, I mean, God, I've been in the mushroom industry since 1973. <laughs> and now all of a sudden mushrooms are the thing. And so for me, it's kind of like, yeah, well, I, I could have told you that a long time ago, <laughs> but now it's actually happening. And so that's very satisfying in that sense. And, and I think it's wonderful that, that they've reached that uh, escape velocity, so to speak. And now there's very getting more common there's lots being written about them and the wonders of them and so i'm i'm very happy about that so i think that's a very good sign in every way and and if they ultimately legalize something like you know psychoactive mushrooms and other plants wow what a wonderful thing what a wonderful uh, um move in the right direction considering that there's a lot of other moves in the wrong direction um that is one positive area out there so i'm i'm happy that that's going on and, and I, I love what you're doing and, and the people that you're interviewing and things like that. i was looking at the whole list of people you were interviewing to this morning and i was going wow that is so cool that's a lot of listening i might have to do here <laughs> <laughs> yeah dennis is great he was on uh, maybe it was episode 32 or 31 something like that and uh yeah he's great and it's it is, and it's, uh, I think, a real testament to, to people like Dennis, people like yourself, uh, who have really been pioneers in this field. And it's, you know, I'm, I've, I've, been, I've been interviewed myself recently in a couple podcasts, and I'm, I'm doing a, an interview for a, a fairly big magazine, I think, upcoming. But it's interesting because I also feel a bit removed from that world also. Like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in a different world. It, it's, it's still very traditional in a way and, and working with, with people who've been working with these plants for a long time. And when, when I came down here and started that, that world didn't exist where, where I was coming from there, there, there was nobody doing that kind of stuff. And now I go back and it's like all over the place and it's like, <laughs> feels like I've been in a time warp or something. And, uh, but but it is, and I think it's really a testament to people like you, because in the 60s, 70s, how many people were working with mushrooms? Like you said, very few, and really studying that. And and I think, you know, even these, these topics like we were talking about, like censorship, it's in the end, I think truth always does uh, win out. And, and that's where in the end, censorship is such a silly thing or prohibition. It, it's because you're fighting life. You're, we're fighting forces that are far, far greater than ourselves. And, and it comes from this scarcity mentality, this, this fear mentality, this control mentality of 
trying to regulate and control and put order to things. And, and I think that's something amazing that these plants do is they, they begin to break those and they begin to, to literally expand our, our consciousness and make us look at things in, in different lights. And, and hopefully always for not only the better of ourselves, but for community, for, for life in general. And uh, so I really honor your work. I think it's amazing what you've done. And, and it was really a pleasure talking to you. I, you know, the, these kind of topics I, I love talking about, even within this world, I find there's very few people who often think about these things. And again, I think that is changing, but, but these more ancient aspects that I think have really been overlooked. And it was one of the main things that, that got me interested in plant medicine was this real fascination of, of history and anthropology and archaeology and astronomy. And it just seemed to me there, there was a story that, that we had forgotten. And, and, and it's fascinating because I didn't even realize before I started studying with a lot of these more ancient indigenous cultures that they have the same story. <laughs> it wasn't something new. It, it had been there all along. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and I think this rediscovery in a way, like you said, it, it's like, yeah, I could have told you that, you know, 30 years ago. And it's, uh, we're, we're in a way we're remembering these things. And, and I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's great what you're doing. And just all of the, all of the value of mushrooms, uh, just on, on, on a, on a nutritional level, on a, on a medicinal level, it, it seems like there's so much potential there. And as we were talking about, even on a deeper level, like the, this act of, of what it means to be a human being, these, these mushrooms are, are really gifts and, and they, they give us that potentiality. So, so I really thank you. And, uh, and, and if you're up for it sometime, I'd, I'd love to do part two, because I, I, you know, especially that, that more ancient uh, kind of worldview uh, interdisciplinary stuff, I, I find that fascinating. And I'd, I'd love to sit down and talk to you some other time if you're up for it. Oh, oh, I absolutely am. And, you know, again, that gets back to, to my, the way I look at things. And that is, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm going back to the future. Uh, Terrence McKenna actually called it the archaic revival. And, and, and I totally agree with that. I mean, we are going back and re revisiting a lot of that. And, and that's where, to some degree, the, the classical education focused on a lot of that kind of information. And now it's like, no, 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 you don't, that, you can't get a job in that. You, you got to go into science or something, you know? So, so yeah. And, and I, I'd love to do that. I mean, I really enjoyed myself, Jason, and, and I'm really happy to be able to have met you and, and we'll definitely stay in touch. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. I, I really appreciate this. You're, you're very welcome, Jason. Thank you. All right, everybody, that is it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jeff. It was really a, a pleasure for me to, to have Jeff on to, to share in all of his life experience and knowledge. Uh, I felt like I was with a, a kindred soul in, in Jeff. So um, I really hope you all enjoyed this, uh, this episode of the podcast. Uh, consider checking out Jeff's work too, his, his companies. Um, uh, the, the more I really thought about it and um, kind of pondered what he was saying. I, I, I think there's, there's a lot of merit to that. And, uh, you know, there's just really a growing science and a re remembering in a way of, of the, all of the benefits that, that not only mushrooms, but that nature has to offer. So I really think he's doing great work and the, the company he has, if you're interested in buying mushrooms, I, I would highly recommend that. Um, 
So I think that's it. Uh, my next episode should be with a gentleman here in the Sacred Valley of Peru. His name is Alonso del Rio. He's an ayahuasquero, uh, quite a well-known ayahuasquero who, who lives here. He's been doing this work for a long time, I believe since the 70s. Um, he studied with one of the, the, the very great Shipibo curanderos, um, and really just a, a wealth of knowledge and uh, a really fascinating guy. Um, I just finished that interview. It went really well. I, I think you all will get a lot out of that interview. So that'll be the following week. And then after that, I'm actually not sure. Um, but as always, I, I hope to bring on some really interesting people. So as always, if you are able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really good way. It's a subscription service for as little as a dollar a month. You can sign up. There's different tiers you can sign up for. They give you things, uh, some things back like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Uh, that's a really big help to me to continue to be able to, to make and produce this show. Uh, to all the people who have done that, thank you very much. As always, I, I really appreciate all of your support. Um, there's also the option to donate via PayPal. And with the YouTube channel, there's the option to join the channel via YouTube, which gives you a lot of the same perks as the Patreon uh, option. Um, if you're not able to do that, helping with the algorithms is always a really big help. If you're watching on YouTube, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving comments in the comment section, sharing the, the videos with your uh, friends, family. Um, if you're listening with the audio version, going on Apple Podcasts, leaving a star rating, a short review, following the show. Also, I believe with Spotify now, there's the option to rate the show. I believe if you hit, there's uh, under the, the logo of the podcast, there should be three little dots. And if you hit that, it should give you the option to rate the show as well. So I think that's it. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and I will see you all on the next episode. Mm -hmm.